720 WGN. It is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio. In for Nick DiGilio. In for Nick D until 4 a.m. today. An eclectic blend of uh, of topics. We're going to talk some some vehicles coming up a little bit later. Not only uh, the vehicles coming up with Tom Appel. We're going to talk with him in just a minute. But also vehicles of the spaceship kind a little bit later on. Stay tuned for that. Philip Mantle, uh, author of Alien Autopsy and many other books, is going to be calling us live uh, from London, so stay tuned for that as well. Plus, on the car side, we're going to be visiting with Mario Andretti, legendary driver, as we ease into the first uh, August Indianapolis 500. We'll talk a little cars with him and TJ Zizzo, who drives the Rust-Oleum rocket in the NHRA Top Fuel Series. He'll be joining uh, us as well a little bit uh, later on. The Hawks, unfortunately, you heard him here on the station on uh, WGN. They lost to Edmonton 6-3, to but they will be back at it, and it will be all here on 720. So without further ado, uh, let's get him on the line. He is the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, the one and only uh, Tom Appel. Tom, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. No, it's great to have you. It's it's great to have you, Tom, because this is the time when I think our relationship with our cars is one of those most important things. As is all other forms of transportation, uh, well, at least the kind of you can go a long way. You know, let's say the planes are sort of off limits. Our cars, and I think our relationship with our cars has become stronger than ever. The love affair that America has is is right there. So it's great to have you on. So. Um, I wanted to ask you before we get into some of the things, and we've got a bunch of different topics and we'll be talking to you throughout the hour is I talked with Tom before the show and I'm like, Oh, I got, I got to bring this up because the, you know, we went to go get some coffee over the weekend and they were, they were having it like a Jeep, you know, like a car show, like a cruise night. And we used to cover a bunch of those, but of course, like so many things throughout the course of the summer, they have been kind of pushed to the sidelines. So where these cruise nights would take over like entire towns or, or whatever, it's such a big part of our culture, they have been gone. So so here's the thing is it's, and it's kind of got this phenomenon of itself. And if you talk to Jeep owners, they'll tell you that as they're driving, you know, down the road, if they come, you know, kind of back and forth, see each other on the road, they give each other sort of a knowing glance, maybe a high sign, and they customize the cars. I mean, it's turned into more than just a phenomenon or a fan uh, kind of fascination with the car. It's like a, it's like, I don't want to say a cult, but I just said it. It's like a club. Yeah, it is. And that's the exact sort of um, emotion and engagement that Ford was hoping to tap with the Bronco. And I think they're probably going to get it. Um, this, just the, the overwhelming interest in this Bronco launch was huge. And as you noted, yeah, Jeep, Jeep people love their cars. They love their vehicles. And many of them actually engage in off-road activity. Um, so the culture, the culture is there. And it'll be very interesting to see how Ford works with this because they've, they've already created this, this fan site called Bronco Nation, and, and some of that interest is slightly synthetic because Ford created the site and, and the club, but, but you do have people, you know, engaging in it, and there's all sorts of activities, so, um, yeah, it's a strange thing, and, and my wife used to own a Saab, and that was one of those things, too, where Saab people always flick their headlights at each other. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, Saab, Saab, Saab owners were crazy. You know, well, here's the okay. So maybe a little insight into the psyche and kind of mindset of of auto owners. I know that when you talk to Subaru people, like uh. Subaru people have this sort of thing, and now they don't go so far as you know maybe customize or tricking out their the you know their vehicles, but they do have this sort of like they feel like they're in sort of a club that I don't know that you get. You know, if you've got a Hyundai Elantra, I don't know that all those people are kind of fist bumping and talking about it. <laughs> No, I think Subaru actually has the highest rate of uh, of re-upping owners. I think in the industry. 
So it's it's one thing to kind of establish some of the things that people would appreciate about a, appreciate about a vehicle and build that brand loyalty and kind of that word of mouth, you know, advocacy that you see. And so I think maybe that's with the Subaru side, with the Jeeps, you know, they really go, you know, the extra mile and there are so many aftermarket um, whether it's products or, or whether it's color schemes or different kind of, you know, things that you can kind of add to it or customize your vehicle with that people seem to do, you know, so there's like a whole outside industry kind of built to the Jeep culture. And, and what you're saying, Tom, is that was kind of organic, right? It was like they got together, they decided to do it. Companies kind of stepped up and said, here's ways that we can participate. But with the Bronco, you're saying they may have, like Ford may have looked at that as a phenomenon and say, well, let's just sort of, you know, I don't, and people still have to participate, right? So you can't completely, you know, fabricate it, right? You, but they're providing sort of fertile ground for this to happen again. No, they absolutely are, and and Ford's motives aren't all that pure either. The the Jeep the Jeep Wrangler, the both the Tudor and the Ford, are combined for almost a quarter million sales a year, and they sell for for near list price. So there is so much money there that's just going just to Chrysler or FCA, they're called now. That Ford absolutely wants a chunk of that, and and uh, it's it's a hugely profitable segment. And we'll see how they do. How, how much of that Ford takes from FCA or from Chrysler will be very interesting to see. Um, but right now, it's a profitable segment that's been just jeeps well I, we're going to talk a little bit more about the ford bronco when we come back and some of the way that that is kind of built into a phenomenon i have talked with uh, whether it's race car drivers or the guys from mika Motors, and it, it, it so it isn't just coming out of left field there was a groundswell of people trying to find the older broncos collect them and either restore them or or do whatever so these are have been popular cars so to come out kind of like they did with the challenger that dodge did where they came out with sort of a new version of what the old favorite version was so there was already sort of this this kind of buzz about the Bronco where it had, you know, fall, I don't want to say fallen back into into favor, but had become super popular and sought after. And so they're kind of feeding that need as well. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to join, uh, we're going to have, continue our conversation with Tom Appel, the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. It's staying here on 720 WGN. Can't find anything in your closet? Clean it up with Closets by Liberty, the newest customizable closet storage and organization system. Upload your photo and your closet challenges for a chance to win a closet system. Seven twenty, WGN. It is Dane here with you in for Nick T until four a.m. and on the line with us, our regular guest. Excited always to have uh, him on the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, uh, the one only Tom Appel. Tom, welcome back. Thank you. So we, before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about you know how cars, trucks, how they can sort of become. Uh, I don't know, back into into favor, like the Toyota Supra is one of those where all of a sudden there was this big buzz about it and, and people were bringing it back and what's old is new, kind of like the movie business, right? You know, you come back and you bring back a franchise that you had some success with. You've already got a built-in fan base. And with the Bronco, they did that. And so in in your opinion, and we've talked a little bit about it, the fact that this is kind of built for that whole kind of car club, car culture, customizing, making it your own all, all, all kind of automatically from the get-go and that they've sort of built that into the, the dna of what has already become i don't know if if the buzz is real tom because the cars i think are they already hard to get or yet on order or back ordered they're making it like it's scarce and exclusive 
Yeah, they are. And the word is that they've sold out the first year of production. I don't know how true that is. Um, and it, it's hard to say with $100 deposits how much that, you know, how committed people really are. But right. if you have that many hand raisers at all, you're likely to be very successful, at least early on. So there's going to be a lot of inrush current, if you will, of interest in this vehicle. Um, what will be interesting to see if, if, if they can sustain that after 18 months or two years. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. The upside of, of some of the collector stuff is that there seems to be a lot of automatic uh, options as far as the customizing, whether it's like different doors or different panels or mud flaps or things like that. One of the stories in the news that um, that you've got for us as well is maybe, you know, as far as that start of the aftermarket options for uh, for the Bronco, maybe in that kind of 3D printer side. So talk a little bit about that. Is that now maybe some of the race teams, a lot of the advancements uh, that we see on the consumer side start out on the track and now 3D printing, just as it's become so prevalent, maybe in the medical field and in other ways are, are getting into cars. Yeah, the media loves 3D printing, and they love 3D printing for the auto industry. And the auto industry is one of those organi- one of those industries that really kind of moves slowly when it comes to something like this. But increasingly, the cost of 3D printing is coming down to the point where more complicated parts might be used for high-volume applications. As you mentioned, for racing, obviously, if you're making adjustments at the track, a 3D printer is an awesome thing to have because you can actually create a piece um, and modify a piece on the spot, which is is incredible. For manufacturing, it's generally cheaper to create a mold or, or something like that, and there's manufacture the part that way where you can replicate it 300,000 times if you need to. But it's, it's seeming like 3D printing is getting to the point now where it is feasible to make a very complicated piece relatively high volume and relatively affordable. So we'll see where this goes for manufacturing. Um, in America, the, you know, the big three makers and then the, the Japanese and German makers that are here, they produce in very high volume. So we may not see it here as much as you see it for small volume manufacturers first. Yeah, maybe for a race team that needs to, you know, they make a modification yep. and maybe they've got time. You know, and, and I don't want to say, Tom, that they're, you know, doing this on the fly during a pit stop or something like that, right? It still takes some time. But for a small race team that may only need a handful of things, you know, it just doesn't pay to, to gear up an entire factory. This is an option. No, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other things that are going on in the news. You've got uh, GM is one of those things. And I, I always kind of look at this as if it's not broke, don't fix it. And if you already got brand <laughs> loyalty. And so, well, think about this. All those long, and we've all seen odd names for odd products. And we wonder about how that whole thing worked out with the long conference table and people sitting around saying, let's call it this. You know, when, when you've already got GM, you know, a line that has, you know, millions of fans and customers and acceptance and familiarity. Why would you bother changing it? So maybe that's not really what it is. Maybe it's a a tweak or an offshoot. What are they talking about? Yeah, this is an interesting story, and there's a lot of backstory to it. One of the things that have been noted about about automakers, and specifically Ford and General Motors, is that their stock never does as well as it should relative to the company's value. I mean, if you were to actually assume the value based on, you know, just just assets and sales and and, then cash flow, they should be higher priced stocks, but they never are. And it seems like stock buyers and and shareholders just don't appreciate an old school brick and mortar manufacturing company. And something interesting happened in 2017 where Delphi, which was once a uh, AC Delco, people might remember that as General Motors Parts Company and a tier one supplier for a bunch of different parts, changed its name 
Delphi changed its name to Delphi and Aptive. And Aptive became the company that took the high-tech stuff, which is really sexy and people love on, on Wall Street. And, and the old name, Delphi, stuck with the company that made the old stuff, the engine blocks and stuff like that. And, and the Aptive stock did very well. And, and this question went to Mary Barra today in a conference call with shareholders, asking her what she thought about changing the name of General Motors, perhaps to create what they call shareholder equity or shareholder value. And she wasn't opposed to it, which was interesting. Now, General Motors' name has been around for 100 years, so it would be very weird for a lot of people if they were to change the name. But on the other hand, if they can jack up the price of the stock by 5 or 10 bucks, it's something that could happen. Is it the kind of thing where, where maybe they'll just create what is, just by renaming it, it'll feel, at least have that perception, that there's either a new company out there, even if it's just maybe a division that's got a different name? Or do they have to attach something that is actually and verifiably new with it, like it is a new either product or a new process that's going on? Well, that's a good question, because one of the other questions that Mary Barra received was whether or not they thought it would be worth spinning off the electric car stuff that General Motors is now working on. And GM's got about a dozen electric cars in the process. It's got a couple plants that are specifically dedicated to EVs. So it would be possible to spin those off and probably keep the company cohesive and whole, but have separate stock for that company. And, and that's something that could do very well on Wall Street as well. It all kind of seems silly. It all seems like a shell game, but there's some sense to it if you are. In fact, trying to bring your your stock price up. Well, with the stock price up, or even get around, or kind of expand what it is you're able to do in the marketplace, because you know, with all the restrictions and sort of the trade wars and that kind of things that are based on either equipment or brand names or, or things that are restricted, is if you're able to say, okay, well, let's say GM is restricted in this country or that country is just kind of sure, it off. Sure. Say, hey, we're not GM. This is our brand new company. It's something totally different, and then uh, and have them try to kind of on the back end sort of legislator control that. Well, that's a great point. And to your point, uh, General Motors is the primary stockholder in something called Cruise Automation, which is uh, General Motors' autonomous vehicle company. Um, and right now they're developing a technology that will someday help power autonomous or hands-free driving. Um, and that company could, in fact, probably enter into joint ventures in China that GM could not because GM requires a certain amount of um, local shareholder um, uh, equity in those in those joint ventures to make them work by chi- by Chinese law, and it's possible because GM's got its fingers in a bunch of pies. They couldn't take a stake where cruise automation possibly could. Ah, oh, you just made me think of something else, and I want to get your thoughts on this. I'm sure it's all been talked about, but when it comes to the driverless stuff, one of the things that I've always thought about is the liabilities that go along with it. You know, you have technology out there. People understand on the insurance side and that human beings are fallible. There's going to be accidents, and we have a mechanism to insure for that and, and deal with it. But when you've got technology that's supposed to be, and I'm doing the air quotes, like infallible, right? Whenever that doesn't work, then, you know, they don't necessarily go after the person that's operating it. They go after the company that's manufacturing. And if I'm GM and I'm creating driverless cars, it would be in my best interest to start a brand new company that doesn't have all of that value to sue for when it comes to if there's any kind of issues or problems, you know, have this kind of little brand new company be the one that you've got to deal with if something goes wrong. Uh, I had never considered that, but that's an excellent point, And it could be part of the motivation here. When we come back from uh, from the break, and we've got a couple minutes before that, we're going to talk about the test drives that you've done. You've done the 2020 Chevrolet Silverado, the 2500 LTZ Duramax. That sounds yes. like a tough. <laughs> sounds like a tough car. <laughs> and then the 2020 Mercedes Benz CLA 250, and the test drive for the 2020 Nissan Titan Pro 
four-time crew cab. We've, of course, you know, covered the auto show uh, a lot of different times, and and you feel like you know the the indigenous you know American manufacturers sort of have the leg up when it comes to the trucks, but. Um, you know, for some of the, whether it's like the Nissans or, or some of these other trucks, the Toyotas, they've made a lot of efforts to create trucks that that didn't all, already fit into sort of the functionality of it's a truck. You can put stuff in the back or maybe the gas mileage. They're trying to be tough, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, they are. Toyota, the Toyota story is interesting, and it's very different than the Nissan story. And they're they're worth comparing because Toyota... Interestingly, came out very strong and had this goal of creating almost selling almost a quarter of a million vehicles right out of the chute, and almost immediately realized that that wasn't going to happen. And they closed one of the factories that they were going to build the Tundra at, have their expectations, and now sell about mm, 100, 120,000 Tundras a year. But they sell them at nearly list price. Toyota has a very loyal following. Oh yeah, no, they've done. I remember those commercials from from way back, where it's like dogs love trucks, and it was a little tiny truck, right? So it wasn't necessarily competing with you know the Ford and the Chevy trucks and the things that you'd see traditionally, you know, riding on the range or you know in a farm or something like that. They were trying to create the functionality, the practicality that you'd have in a truck, but with the things that you would know, love, and appreciate about a Toyota. So we're going to take a break, and we come back. We're going to have more. We're going to talk about his test drives uh, as the trucks do all the things that trucks need to, but also have kind of that luxury and some of the the extra kind of appointments that you'd expect from a modern car. We'll talk with uh, Tom Appel, publisher, Consumer Guide Automotive. It's staying here on 720 WGN. <music> 720 WGN, it is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio in for Nick D until 4 a.m. 312-981-7200. If you have a question about cars, excited to have on good friend of the program, Tom Appel, publisher, Consumer Guide Automotive. Tom, welcome back. There we go. You are back. So when it comes to the test drives, do you try... I, mean, I know that there you've got to obviously review everything, and there's things that you are looking for when it comes to the car, some of the, the basics as far as what it is, the engine, the gas mileage, and things like that. But are there little things that maybe people don't automatically think of that you, as a reviewer, you know, look for and know that they'll appreciate? Yeah, there's a few things that we kind of focus on at Consumer Guide, perhaps more than other other outlets, and, and plenty of outlets do a great job, too. But we're really into ergonomics, and that's how easily controls fall to hand and how quickly you adapt to using the controls in a vehicle and, and how naturally they come into play as you're driving. Um, obviously, we drive a car for two weeks at the office, and people will have it for a year, so people do get used to that stuff. But sometimes stuff just doesn't make sense, and it's an annoyance, and we like to make sure that's true. Uh, uh, otherwise, we're, we're really keen on things like quietness, ride comfort, interior space, ease of entry, ease of exit, things like that. And, and I think they're important in, in terms of the day-to-day uh, ownership of a vehicle. And in the case of something like the Chevy uh, Silverado 2500 that you had mentioned, this is a big vehicle, and it can be hard to live with in the city. But on the other hand, we, we made note of the fact that it, it does ride fairly well, and even though this is a huge diesel, um, it's relatively quiet and surprisingly livable given its mission as a serious workhorse. Are you seeing that people are, you know, with the gas, you know, not being as expensive as maybe it once was, that that's not necessarily the consideration? I think that, you know, if, if, if the gas mileage and getting around the extra expense to drive the vehicle wasn't there, people appreciate, at least a lot of them do, like a bigger, roomier car, more practical, you can put stuff in it. So they want all the kind of things that you would want out of one of those bigger vehicles, but people do like the little luxuries. 
Yeah, and a couple of things have happened, too. Unlike the last time gas prices were very high and there were a lot of old-school body-on-frame SUVs that people were buying, um, crossovers now are not nearly as inefficient as those SUVs were. So people are buying fewer small cars, and, in fact, a lot of them are being discontinued. Um, Toyota, for example, just dropped the Yaris lineup, which was at subcompact cars. Um, but, but crossovers, especially compact and midsize crossovers, frequently will touch 30 mpg on the highway, and that used to be the territory of small cars. So I think that this, this theory that, yeah, people are buying a lot of crossovers and they're all going to regret it when gas hits 4 bucks again, I don't think they will. I don't think the impact will be as great, and I don't think that we're going to see people scrambling for cars uh, the way we did last time. Yes, and I think that's really the answer, too, is on the manufacturer side, just step up the fuel mileage, and then people don't have to be put at that sort of crossroad from kind of compromising, getting something they wouldn't rather have just because they can't have it be that expensive to drive on the fuel side. So when it comes to the Silverado, talk a little bit about it, like you know, what it is you know, and what will make people want to get that for their next car. Yeah, the Silverado has traditionally been the second best-selling vehicle in America, um, but we're usually talking about the half-ton or 1,500. This is the 2,500, or sometimes called the three-quarter ton, and it's a it's a class-up. It's, it's closer to a commercial vehicle, and it's available with one of the large diesels that people probably know the names of. Chevy has the Duramax, Ford has the Power Stroke, and, and Chrysler or Ram has the, the Cummins engine, and these are giant high-torque diesels that are meant for serious towing, um, but they can be surprised livable and the Chevy Duramax engine the, the General Motors Duramax engine is easily the quietest of the three it's also reasonably thrifty given the vehicle's mission we usually see between 14 or 15 mpg with that vehicle but this is a nice vehicle the interior is not as nice um, as the Ford F250 or the Ram 2500 but it is roomy it is easy to drive surprisingly easy to drive um, but it is it is huge <laughs> it's not a thing you want to drive around Chicago and it's a terrible thing Thing to commute in. That's it, right. That's the that's the description on the cell sheet. It just says huge. It's just it's, well, now, Tom. Let the listeners know a little bit about the diesel side of it. Is because there are many people who won't consider a diesel because they feel that it's just whether it's for trucks or commercial vehicles or they're just not familiar with it or they don't necessarily trust being able to like get it or find the fuel everywhere that they would normally do it. But when it comes to to getting a you know a diesel engine, it's the kind of thing that can really change. You know, I think the length of uh, of the life of the engine and all that stuff. Yeah, and the diesel phenomenon in America took an ugly turn when the Volkswagen scandal broke free, and there are far fewer diesels now available in passenger vehicles. Uh, but in pickup trucks, um, they tend to sell very well still, and I think the market penetration on half-ton pickups is about 20%, or 15 20%, and it's more than half on the kind of truck we're talking about here, the three-quarter-ton trucks. Uh, again, they, they can tow a small planet, you know, it's amazing how capable they are, but they are expensive. Uh, upfront cost to add that diesel is about $10,000, but you get most of that money back when you resell the vehicle, yeah. so you're just sort of borrowing that money for a while. Yeah, mileage just doesn't mean the same as it does when you've got the diesel. No. The second car in your list is you've got the, the 2020 Mercedes-Benz CLA 250, and when you mention some of the ergonomics and things, when when it comes to the Mercedes, there's things that you don't necessarily think of that you're looking for, those intangibles, right? But when you get in them, whether it's the way things fit or the quietness of the rides or the ergonomics, you just appreciated it, and you're just like, wow, this this is just nice. It's just So even their lower-end models are still are still actually very, very nice. 
Yeah, this is the this this is the most affordable or second most affordable sedan in Mercedes lineup. And for people who aren't familiar with a weird phenomenon that's taken place over the last decade or so, it's to call sedans coupes when they have rakish roof lines. And, and, and it's almost an excuse for there being lousy headroom in the back seat. But the CLA is one of those vehicles, and it's actually referred to as a coupe by Mercedes-Benz, but it is a four-door. Um, but this is a subcompact car. Large people might find it a little bit restrained. But once you get into it, you realize, to your point, that it is very much a Mercedes. The materials quality is high. The workmanship is high. And it is a lot of fun to drive. Um, it gets very expensive in a hurry for a car that's small, and that can be off-putting. The price of this car started around $40,000. It climbed to $50,000 with options. And one annoyance of German cars, especially BMW and Mercedes, is that options that are usually included or standard in other vehicles and less expensive vehicles are, are, are optional on this. Like heated seats, I think, are almost $600 on this car. Well, yeah, but you need them, though, right? Especially in Chicago area, you really do. You do. And that's one of the things. You may not think, for those people out there that haven't had heated seats, once you have them, like, it's one of those things you won't go back. Like You really do think that that's something um, that you can appreciate. And you mentioned, too, that you know even on their lower end, of course, $40,000 $40, is still a lot of money. But I think for those people that are going to maybe get into Mercedes, um, think, hey, that's something that is sort of affordable. That, and you, you hit on it, that it, it really is a Mercedes. It isn't like if we remember the days of the of what, when Cadillac did, what was it, the Cimarron or something? <laughs> Where, oh man! Where the only thing Cadillac about it was like the logo, right? That was it. It really was not, you know, really what you'd expect from that car make. Yeah, I know that was actually a Chevrolet, Chevrolet Cavalier with leather. <laughs> um, there wasn't really a lot more to it. <laughs> yes, yeah. So that's great. Okay, so it's good to see. And of course, Mercedes has a great uh, plan as far as you know the maintenance and the, and they offer a lot of things. And it is expensive, but really do. I mean, I, I feel that people will feel like they get some value for it. So then the 2020 Nissan Titan Pro 4X Crew Cab, and just by using the words, you know, like Titan, it makes it seem like it's it's bigger, it's tougher, it can compete with those American trucks. Yeah, Nissan's been trying to to carve out a share of the American big truck market now for, since 2004. And the Titan, the second generation of the Titan, the one that we just drove here, uh, came out a couple of years ago, and it was much closer to Nissan's attempt to to get people to to not look at Silverados and F-150s and Rams and and maybe visit their Nissan dealership. And it's not a bad vehicle, but Nissan is having a terrible time getting buyers into this vehicle or even to consider this vehicle. And last year they sold something like 40,000 units of it, which sounds good, but when you consider that Ford sold almost 900,000 F-150s last year, um, you realize that Nissan's got a long road to hoe. Um, And and part of the problem, too, is they don't offer a lot of variations of it. There's just one engine. uh, just two body styles, and, and that can hold things back. But to that point, the vehicle that we drove, the Pro 4X, which is sort of off-road ready, not a bad vehicle. It is roomy. It's nicely finished. It has lots of power. The fuel economy is bad for the class, um, but but it, it's worth people test driving. It, it is not... Um, it is a contender. It's it's just loyalty in that segment is so high. I don't think people are ever going to look at it. What's the price point for something like that? Because you know that'll make people who would normally want something else say, "Hey, you know what? We'll try it." 
Yeah, that's another problem, too. This one was fully equipped at about $60,000, which is right where the, the American vehicles would be. So there isn't a price advantage to going with a Nissan. I'm wondering, you know, and we talked a little bit about if it's not broke, don't fix it on the name for GM. But, you know, uh-huh. with, with Nissan, you have so many great cars and an established, I think, customer base. And so what what is the incentive for taking things that you're already working at a disadvantage, that you already, you know, it's uphill and you've already had, you know, non-success? when trying to get into those different categories. Well, like, why do they bother? They bothered because there's a lot of money in this segment, and they thought they could crack it. Um, and, and to that end, they were also trying to break into the commercial uh, fleet. So they had a van uh, that was based on the same architecture that they were building at the same factory. So they thought that if they could get enough volume, they could probably make this work. And, and neither one of those vehicles has sold especially well. Let's talk a little bit about some of that. You've you've made me think of a couple different things where you have cars that traditionally have a lane that they're driving in and everybody would agree, you know, they've made a name for themselves and had some success, but decided to be, or at least try to be more things to more people. And like with Porsche, you know, it's a sports car, right? But then they get into the SUV and then they get into the, the Panamera and they get into some of these other things. What has been the success? I see the cars on the road. I haven't necessarily driven them, but they do look nice. Has the reception been pretty well? Has it really kind of changed, you know, kind of what they can be to either be sort of that family car or sort of that regular daily driver? Someone at Porsche once said, we build cars like the Cayenne, which is their mid-sized crossover, so we can still sell cars like the 911, which is their traditional sports car. And this has actually worked really well for Porsche. Porsche is one of the most profitable uh, companies in the auto industry on a per-unit basis. And and the Cayenne and the Macan, which is their compact crossover, and the Panamera, which is their mid-sized car, these have all done very well because they have a lot of the character that people expect from a Porsche. The interiors are beautiful. They are sporty. They are fun to drive, and, I, and, and they've very carefully been, been able to maintain that sort of Porsche mystique, and they still sell the 911, and they still sell the Boxster and the Cayenne, and those are real sports cars, and, and, and I think that the, um, they were able to brandish their, reputa- brandish their reputation on those vehicles that they've, they've, kept, the, uh, they've kept just as pure to, sports, to their sports missions as ever. Yeah, and you see, and you see them on the road on a regular basis. So it's the kind of thing that's you know resonating with people. People are driving them; they seem to work, and and the price point isn't prohibitive. Where it is something that you can't necessarily do. I mean, it's a it's a pricey car. It's not a it's not a cheap car, but they've kind of maintained, like you said, given them that sort of you you're in a real Porsche, but it's it's functional, it's practical, and it's not crazy. When we come back, I do want to ask you a little bit about. Well, actually, we'll ask this one really quick before we go to break. Is it maybe the success of Porsche has that been maybe the the inspiration for companies like Maserati or Lamborghini to go far away from what they would normally do, especially with Lamborghini, to create their own sort of SUV crossovers. I mean, is anyone buying those? Uh, that's a good question. The Lamborghini Urus, I believe, that's U-R-U-S, uh, is selling quite well. So that's doing well for them. Maserati and, and Alfa Romeo are not doing well with their crossovers. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. And sometimes the inspiration for the car or the introduction isn't necessarily a commercial or a flyer. Sometimes it's being splashed across the big screen and built into a really cool storyline. So we're going to talk. And this is going to be exciting. I'm excited for it. 312-981-7200 if you got anything to add to that or questions about cars as well. The Cars of American Graffiti. We'll talk about it with Tom Appel when we come back. It's Dane on 720 WGN. The bumpers. 
Tom Hush in the booth spinning the hits here on 720 WGN. It is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio on the line with us, Tom Appel. Uh, joining us, talking a little bit of cars and in you know some of the uh, product placement, you're seeing it, you know, in some of those movies. That, whether it's the the Audis that are in the Avengers movies, right? That Tony Stark is driving. You want, uh-huh. um, you know, now you know it's product placement. It's something we're familiar with. They're probably paying, and I'm sure it pays dividends. You know, for a movie like American Graffiti, one of the iconic films um, that we've seen. You know, George Lucas, all that kind of stuff, and and the cars were such a focal point in it. Um, were those, was it, was it product placement or were those just cool cars and they wanted to have them in the movie? But then again, of course it raised awareness and I'm sure sales down the road. Yeah, no, there was no product placement involved in that because the movie was built, uh, what was that? It was 1973, 1972, the movie came out. So all the product there would have been long out of production, although all the brands were still good. So I suppose to some extent that could have worked. So when you watch that as a car guy who has made, you know, the automotive world and cars, your life, and you see a movie where, you know, it isn't a movie necessarily just about cars, but it's a sort of a central and focal point within it and such a big part of the of the cool factor. Like when you first saw that, Tom, like what were your thoughts? Was it was it the, the cool storyline that you thought was, hey, this is a really good movie? It was like, wow, these are some great cars. Yeah, at first I didn't even think it was really a car movie because cars, uh, everything happens in cars, but they're not the central focal point. But the more I talk to people who who have seen that movie and love that movie, uh, the more I'm convinced it is a car movie. And I think my primary takeaway is, having grown up here in the Chicago area, is that we had nothing like these this kind of cruising. It just seems like a great way to kill an evening, just cruising around in a fun car. And, and, and yeah, we had nothing like that when I was a kid. Well, you know, it showed, I think, the culture, that car culture that was in California. And so maybe it, I'm sure, inspired some activity here, you know, or for anywhere, you know, that saw people around the country saying that this, you know, cruising, and I'm doing again, the the air quotes was something that existed. One of the cars, well, there's a couple, we're going to talk about a couple of those cars, but for sure that 56 Thunderbird and Suzanne Summers and all that, I, I, I think it launched her career, at least raised awareness, like who's that girl that was even part of sort of the storyline in, in the movie, but that car for people to see it now was already a popular car, but I think, um, I think in a day and age where maybe we didn't have access to the internet or media or, or all that, it really highlighted that Thunderbird. It did, yeah. It, it, it stands out. It kind of stands out in history, and it stands out in that movie because that would have been an incredibly expensive car relative to the other cars in the movie. So, so whoever the character was in that car had to be special or at least wealthy, and she was riding around alone. So it was perfect thing where she's she's in this Thunderbird. Everyone knows what a Thunderbird is, and she's alone in the car, and it's expensive and kind of kind of elitist. It was it was great. It, it, I think it compounded the uh, the mystery of who she was and where she was going. Yeah, and I'm sure that it drove up the prices of people who were collecting those cars even then it was an old car and now of course you see those on the auction block and they always fetch a premium but now do you think some of the other cars too where they were highlighted in such a cool way it made people think like let's go out to barns and kind of find these or let's go pick these things up whether it was like the you know the the ford what was it the, the 56 55 chevy there's the 58 impala the 32 the ford coupe i mean that was that was really a very cool car yeah, the, the Deuce Coupe, um, which is a fabulous car, was a hot rod famous. It was a hot rod favorite. So I'm, I'm not sure that the value of those could go up anymore because they were already scarce. Because people love to make hot rods out of uh, out of the 32 Fords. But the 58 Chevy might have enjoyed a lot of fame that came out of this movie. That was Ron Howard's car, uh, great looking car, and it was kind of the end of the tail fin era. Um, and I and I think that 
they put a lot of light back on that design and how important it was in, in sort of the evolution of the end of the 50s and what that meant for design. And it's entirely possible that car uh, went up in value because of this movie. Yeah. Well, people are getting out and driving the cars, and I know that we're hoping that some of that kind of cruise night situation that can happen around communities and in towns uh, around Chicagoland can continue on sort of like a, I don't know, like at least a a news note and and maybe of more concern that as we talk about all the positive things about new cars and cool cars from movies is that this is a surprising thing is that highway deaths spike for the third straight months as drivers take advantage of empty roads. So there's a lot less people out there, a lot less people on the roads, at least the early parts of the pandemic. I appreciated the commute. You know, there was a lot less cars out there. Um, But so, so what's the, is it that people are driving faster or that maybe they're lulled into a false sense of security because there's less cars and they're just running into things? What's the deal? I am actually witness to this on an almost daily basis. I tend to, I live in Palatine and work in Morton Grove, so I tend to take Northwest Highway to work, and I come back later in the evening on 90 to Kennedy to get back home. And and when I hit the highway at about 8 o'clock at night, I, I see coming past me cars going 100, 120 miles an hour just shooting down the highway, and I'm pretty sure that they feel invincible because police officers are not pulling cars over right now. What is that true? I mean, I don't, we don't necessarily want to say that, you know, on the airways that, you know, by the way, you know, police aren't pulling people over. Is it just that there's I mean, is there a conscious effort or is there something out there where they're saying, well, let's just not do that right now? Or is it just is it lack of manpower or working or prioritizing in other areas? Or, or is there something that kind of really happening with the amount of, I guess, attention to drivers on the roadway? It is, it is all of those things. There are, in fact, municipalities and some police organizations where they are being told not to pull people over unnecessarily or take unnecessary risks. And you can see how a police department would not want to put their, 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 their officers at risk because, one, they want to keep them healthy, and, two, they don't want to lose people you know, from, their, from their staff. So uh, to whatever extent this is really happening, and, and, yeah, I think you're right. We should be cautious about how we say this. It does seem like the highways are being a little bit less policed than they once were, and it does seem like people feel empowered to do whatever they want to do, and there are some people taking advantage of that situation. I had not considered it exactly because, of course, the, the pandemic, and, and they don't want unnecessary you know, contact. They don't want people right. going up to the windows and, I guess, you know, trading information or handling the driver's license or any of the things that go along with a, with a stop, and so they're just trying to, I guess, limit uh, some of that interaction, and and so I guess that's one of the side effects is that uh, is that people feel emboldened and, and and get into some of these accidents. Before we let you go and let the listeners know, we're talking with Tom Appel, publisher, Consumer Guide Automotive, and we're going to get the information where people can uh, keep up with all of the things that you guys are doing and all of the different reviews and, and advice and inspiration on the car side. But we we would normally ask on on the road, we would ask you know whether it's celebrities or race car drivers or movie stars or rock stars, like what their first car was. And I don't know, Tom Hush, you know you know Tom Appel very well because he's a regular guest. Are you familiar? Can, do you know what oh, Tom God. Appel's first car was? We've definitely talked about this before with Tom, and he might. <laughs> I don't know if he'll be upset for me not remembering, but I do. I have. I could I not just, remember for I, the life of me. I Tom. didn't. Well, the, well then <laughs> I, I could, you couldn't. You couldn't well, put a I, gun to my head. I feel the information is relatively fresh then for the listeners as well. So, Tom, what was what was your first car, and was it the kind of thing that maybe it was a relative's car that just got handed to you, and you were obligated or by default it was yours, or were you able to kind of pick out something you really liked for that first ride? It was the car that I was driving first and more or less became mine and my sister's because it was a hand-me-down. That was a 74 Plymouth Valiant. But if it's the first car I spent my own money on, it was a 1985 Volkswagen Scirocco. 
The Scirocco. Oh, the Scirocco, yeah. Finally appointed. It was oh, the Scirocco was real sporty. It was it was a gorgeous car. It was mechanically just a golf or a rabbit at the time, so it was a fairly simple vehicle. But it, yeah, it did, it did enjoy really sexy bodywork. Tom, <laughs> hey, look at the way he thinks of it. So, and so, Tom Hush, what was your first car? Do you remember offhand? Uh, it for, was like six months ago, I'm sure, right? Oh yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks, man. Never um, youthful. Uh, first car I ever drove was a 2008 Volvo XC90. Uh, so it was my mom's car. Uh, she drove that. She drove that car. It was a really nice car. It had TVs in the back, you know, in the back. That's too back nice. Everyone else. Hey, man, <laughs> I don't make the rule. It's just the car that was there. All right. I was, yeah, my dad had a Porsche. Yeah, I'm just going to drive the Porsche to school. Oh. You know, that was, that would have been sweet. But, um, but the most recent, uh, the car after that I drove, uh, until I had to get it sold to CarMax it was a 1998 Saturn. Wow. Coop. The Saturn. Hey, Tom, whatever. I mean, I know it, they don't make them anymore, but uh, I, my mom had a Saturn. Whatever happened to that? And they, is there any <laughs> on the collector market? Of the, are they just on the kind of trash heap of, of automotive's past, or is there some kind of collector value to a Saturn? There was a vehicle called the Saturn Sky, which was a two-seat sports car. Uh, that was an analog to the Pontiac Solstice. That car actually has some serious collector value. Um, every other Saturn is pretty much a used car. That's pretty, if you can even get parts for it. Are, is it tough to get parts for things like or any of the old, you know, whether it's the Pontiacs or some of the cars? Like, How long do they are they obligated to keep things in stock? Uh, yeah. That's a great question, and the obligation, there is actually obligation to maintain a vehicle's uh, viability for 10 years after its discontinuation. So if a company has any business presence in the United States, it is obliged under law to support that vehicle for a decade. But Saturn, which was a division of General Motors, yeah, there's parts all over the place. They sold it super high volume, so there's plenty of support there. My first car was the 74 Monte Carlo, which was Excellent. which was a fine vehicle. We drove it everywhere, and it had that long hood, and it felt like it was 40 feet long. Took you a while to, to kind of figure out the parking, but after a while, you got it down. And it was like a living room on the inside. You know, <laughs> it, it had so much room compared to the cars we have today. For those people who want to uh, get more information, Tom Appel, he knows everything about every single car that ever existed over there at uh, Consumer Guide Automotive. Where can people find you? Yeah, go to consumerguide.com. You can go there. You can find our blog there. You can find our podcast if you just want to stream it there. That's the Car Stuff Podcast. Or you can find that anywhere that you download uh, podcasts. Uh, but yeah, but everything's at consumerguide.com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am car underscore guy underscore Tom on Twitter. Tom Appel, the best in the business. Thanks, Tom. This has been fun. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, so we are going to take a break for news, and when we come back, we're going to have a conversation with uh, with the great and iconic Mario Andretti. This was an opportunity to talk with Mario uh, as he was just coming off of uh, the 50th anniversary of his Indianapolis 500 win, and then also being inducted into the Italian American Sports Hall of Fame as well. And so, Tom, when it comes to like, what was the first car that you ever had that? Um, that you there was maybe more along the lines of, of of what Tom would have and be able to have as opposed to like your your parents' awesome cars. Uh, right now, I bought a Honda Accord off my mom, her old Honda Accord. Those are nice, but super roomy. Man, you for look, for big for a tall fellow like myself, you lucked out. I did. I mean, it's got a ton of body damage because my brothers drove it and they're idiots. But uh, hey, you know, 
312-981-7200 your first cars if you want to share it maybe the best car you ever had or maybe the worst car you ever had something that you can just as tom appell suggested so many things that you could suggest us uh as well so we're going to talk with mario andretti when we come back it's time for the news 720 wgn out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. Hi, this is Mario Andretti, and you're on the road with Dane on WGN. Still, it's a real good bet. The best is yet to come. 720 WGN on the road with Dane live here high atop Chicago in the Skyline studio. And on the line with us now, we've got possibly the greatest race car driver, the greatest racing personality undeniable in the history of motorsports champion in Formula One, IndyCar Daytona 500 champion Indy 500 champion and soon to be a Chicago resident at least for a few hours, excited to have him, the one and only Mario Andretti, welcome to WGN Thank you, thank you Dave Now over the over the years, just I think is the side effect of all that success is that you have not only the you know championships and accolades and and awards and recognition, but also I'm sure you're a member of multiple halls of fame, and now you have the opportunity to have additional recognition from one of those great halls of fame right here in Chicago, the National Italian American Sports Hall of Fame as a, as a lifetime achievement. Having won so many different things, is it exciting to get more awards, especially one that's so close to your heritage? What, of course. <laughs> of course it's exciting. I mean, it's uh, the ultimate compliment, actually. Uh, you know, these are the things that... Uh, you never expect, and and when they happen, you say, "Oh my goodness!" Then uh, just when you're inducted in the Hall of Fame, you look at who preceded you and and uh, the roster that that, that is there. If oh my goodness, you know, I'm alongside this and that and the other, and you know, especially here, this uh, National Italian Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, I have my son and my nephew John also in this uh, Hall of Fame, so. As a family, uh, are we proud or what? You know, <laughs> you know all these things have uh, great, great meaning for, for us, as you could possibly imagine. Well, you think about this, and, you know, it's one thing to be recognized for success in sports, on the track, through career, and all that kind of stuff. But with the added, I don't know, weight, but but kind of focus on the Italian side of things. And you've always been a great ambassador for motorsports. We've talked about that a lot, but also very proud of your of your Italian heritage, you know, as an Italian-American and all that. So talk a little bit about that, because you are in some pretty great company. There are so many. I think this is another opportunity for people to kind of focus and recognize on all of the great sports, action, entertainment, and personalities that are Italian-Americans in sports. Yes, Dana, you just said, uh, I think the Italian community has uh, always traditionally been very proud of, uh, of their heritage. Uh, uh, we have Italian-Americans, we have Italian-born, uh, like myself, uh, who uh, have made this the home for uh, you know the, the majority of our lives. And, and uh, of course, we're proud of... Um, you know, of our heritage, as you say, but also and never to forget, you know, what America has done for us, the opportunities, all of those things. So it's um, it's a double situation. I mean, there's pride on both sides, but uh, we never want to forget, you know, where uh, some of the ancestry or, or uh, us is, uh, you know, uh, like myself, uh, you know, Italian-born, you know, just uh, Italy still, you know, my blood is still there, I always say. You know, when I'm asked a question, you when I'm in Italy, I says, Mario, do you feel American or Italian? I said, well, I said, the passport does not change the blood. You know, so <laughs> I will always be Italian, but 
I said, uh, but my home is America, and uh, and I have a degree of debt, you know, to the, to for this country, you know, uh, and I know how much uh, this has meant for us and the family. So, um, Dane, uh, I'm I always say the perfect example of having lived the American dream. Uh, so uh, we celebrate both sides whenever we uh, we're part of these events and uh, uh, among the Italian American community. Now, when you get with other prominent Italian or Italian American sports figures, is there like an additional bond? You think of this, and for the listeners too, and we'll list some of them off. You know, you've got Joe DiMaggio, Rocky Marciano. So, it, and it, it isn't just you know racing. Obviously, the Andretti family has contributed additional members and uh, and great success on the racing side. But do you guys get together? And because I got to think about it, it is really as as much of a of a great melting pot that American is, you know, Italians have been able to get, whether it's the food, whether it's the music, whether it's the art, the history, the culture, they have been able to be as proud and sharing all of that great stuff, as well as really, you know, being all American. Well, indeed. I mean, when I look at, uh, you know, at the roster of inductees, uh, I look at Primo Carnera. Primo Carnera is from the area where I was born. You know, he speaks the same, he spoke the same dialect as I do up in the Eastern Peninsula. And so, uh, and then, you know, I'm just looking at my sports bar. You know, I have a glove, you know, the gloves from, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, the modern, you know, oh, so wow. it, it's, it's, uh, awesome. and actually, uh, he, he signed the glove. He says to Mario, double R, <laughs> Mario, <laughs> good old Jake, you oh. know. <laughs> but it, it's you know it's 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 neat you know it's very neat and um, I, I met Joe DiMaggio you know and uh, so um, again but um, to receive the the first uh, I think this is uh, yeah the first of the lifetime achievement award I mean I, I never thought that I'd get a, a second shot at it here at <laughs> oh, oh come on you know here's the thing uh, and, and for the listeners and, and those who have met you echo this and your family echoes it and all that kind of stuff with all the success I don't know how you stay as humble as you are that you're, you're the only person Mario that is surprised <laughs> about it when you come to Chicago you know not every visit of course is is here to accept an award but you do get to Chicago on a, on a regular basis maybe traveling through and you're not that far from pennsylvania what is it is there are certain things you want to share with the listeners that you get to do or enjoy while you are here when you can well you know i actually uh you talk about the relationship with the uh chicago or the proximity of it uh it's uh, i drove for a team that you know the car Haas, you know who yeah. uh has uh has been a citizen of that area for for and I had known him for about twenty years or better. You know, I drove for him for twelve uh, straight seasons. So uh, my visits to Chicago were very, very frequent, and um, I have friends all over. And I could visit Chicago and visit some of the friends like uh, it could be almost a second home. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll adjust the sign out front as you come into town. It's like a home of, at least second home of Mario Giordano. Mario, you mentioned, you know, the passport doesn't change the blood. Neither does the badge or the logo on the car. With that new movie coming out, Ford versus Ferrari, for the listeners, letting them know you won your Indy 500 in a Ford. You were just out for the anniversary for Ferrari and, and obviously a great uh, affinity for Ferrari as well. Your thoughts on, on this movie? That is one of the greatest stories in sports, not just motorsports. Sports and to have it happen there. Do you have allegiances on either side for this? Are you excited for the movie? Excited, yes, because uh, I uh, I was on both sides of it yeah. uh, at one time or another in my career. I won 
with both brands. I won even in sports cars, you know, what's actually uh, showcased in a movie with both brands. And, um, and you know, it's amazing, obviously, uh, how grateful I am, you know, for uh, the opportunity uh, that I had along the way in my career. I, I think out of... Uh, 111 wins, 67 of my wins, you know, the way we kind of were with some kind of four power, you know, and uh, and then Ferrari, you know, Ferrari is like in, here again, you know, another home for me right. because of uh, what that meant for me in my career. I won my very first Formula One race with Ferrari. Uh, I raced the last race with Ferrari in 82. Uh, I won several sports car races. You know, 72, uh, you know, we contributed in the Manufacturers Championship with Jackie Eakes in a Ferrari. So, again, you know, I was just there over the weekend at, at Coda in Austin and uh, I spent, you know, almost the entire weekend right there with the Ferrari team. And, uh, and they treat me like, um, uh, you know, like, like certainly part of it. Yeah. And uh, so, again, it's a big, happy family. <laughs> and um, and we all, you know, proud of the opportunities that we've had. And uh, any any given time, you know, that's, that's where uh, I feel like part of, uh, you know, several manufacturers along the way, you know, with yeah. a career that, that I've had. Uh, lucky, uh, you know, fortunate I've been to being around long enough, so I, I touch many corners here. So you extend the automotive olive branch between both sides, even though the movie is Ford versus Ferrari. Mario is <laughs> is, is, a, is a, a beloved family member of both as well, letting the listeners know we're talking with uh, racing legend Mario Andretti, who is coming here to receive the first ever Lifetime Achievement Award for the National Italian American Sports Hall of Fame. And when it comes to the history and, and the roles that you have played in it, and of course we celebrated it with everybody uh, last year, the 50th anniversary of uh, of the Indy 500 win. And coming on some news that was a surprise to many in the racing community is that you know one of the most iconic sports facilities, you've got Wrigley Field here, you've got Lambeau Field, you've got places around the country, the world, and, and Indianapolis Motor Speedway is right up there. Your thoughts on that? Because I know that it means more than just the facility to the grounds. It's the racing series. W- was it a surprise to you? And what do you think it means? Well, it was not a total surprise because as somewhat of an insider, I knew that uh, uh, with the right uh, individual, right entity coming on, Indianapolis, uh, you know, there was some interest uh, from the family standpoint to, to hand it over to some, some other entity to continue the operation. And uh, this was uh, perfect timing, in my opinion, and uh, going to the perfect entity, uh, with Roger Penske, we don't have to, um, you know, just uh, talk about, you know, what his credentials are, obviously. Yep. But from the standpoint of uh, what he can bring and what it means to him and maintaining the sacrosanct, I think, uh, part of what Indy's all about, the, the deep tradition and everything else. I mean, it could be a, a more perfect marriage. And it uh, seemed like, uh, you know, the family uh, is uh, very emotional, of course, you know, but, but uh, you know the home and George family is uh, is very much at peace uh, with this transaction and uh, and the fact that they uh, it's not only Indy but it's the IndyCar series right. obviously that right now it's going to have just an extra boost even though it's I think uh, there's a lot of buzz the series uh, is doing quite well and it, and it's uh, it's progressing nicely and and uh, but it needs to regain I think. Uh, what it lost, uh, you know, when it was during the glory days, you know, since for some they're familiar, since the split, you know, of the 90s. So, but a lot of things um, uh, are in motion the right way, and to yeah. have a steward, 
like uh, the organization, you know, of Roger Pensky is is perfect, perfect scenario. I'm, um, I personally, uh, as an absolute fan there, with <laughs> and with the kids, you know, having a lot of skin in the game, I yeah. uh, I rejoice uh, with what's happened. Wow, you know, and you you've echoed the sentiments of so many, and you say it's a perfect person, perfect marriage. I really think that it's like the only person that really combined not only that reverence, that history, that connection to, to Indianapolis, but also the, you know, the, the resources, right? The finances and then also the business side and the marketing and, and all the things that, that Roger Penske does and does well. I think he's really the, the only person situated to make this where the, everybody universally is really excited. I wanted to ask you this one last thing. And so Penske also has obviously, you know, in a bunch of different series and in NASCAR as well, and as a Daytona 500 winner, and and have raced in that series as well. That particular race, the Indy 500, is is a unique animal, and it is amazingly appreciated. One of the biggest sporting events in the world. But the Brickyard 400 has had some challenges, whether it's with um, with attendance and the you know the appreciation from the fans, and it has fallen off a little bit. Do you think that that Penske or Roger having his connection, obviously with NASCAR as well, can maybe bring that event back to where it was maybe ten years ago? Well, you know, obviously, I think it's all, you know, something to look forward in a positive way because uh, just the way he does things, as you said, uh, obviously, uh, he has uh, tremendous involvement in NASCAR as well. He's a participant there and a winner and all of that. And, and uh, you know, having facilities such as Indianapolis, he wants to put it to work. You know, he wants it to work. Uh, you know, nowadays, the rent's pretty high. You know, so, uh, you know he's, uh, they're looking at uh, having a lot of activities there, concerts, you know, and on and on and on, you know, just uh, let's use this venerable facility for things that can attract, uh, I think, uh, people from all over the world. And, uh, and of course, your marquee events, uh, you know, he's even talking about having a, a 24-hour sports car race there. Why not? You know, the facility's there. So, um, you know, bring the majors there. And bring back Formula One. You're right, because when you have a facility like that to utilize it in so many ways, I know they had the Rolling Stones there a number of years back. I mean, you can really maximize the potential and give so many people, because undeniably, the first time I remember walking into that place, it is so unlike anything else that is out there in any manner or means of sports. It is, it's breathtaking. And the more ways I think you can get people involved and in there, I think the better. And uh, it's going to be great for the community, great for the Speedway as well. You mentioned the perfect marriage, let's say with Penske and, and Indy, the perfect marriage, perfect person to be the the first ever inductee for a Lifetime Achievement Award for the National Italian American Sports Hall of Fame is you, Mario, because you, not only on the career and the sports side, it's all there, but also walking the walk as an Italian American and a proud one as well. So congratulations. I think everybody is going to be excited to see you there tonight in Rosemont. And, uh, and thanks so much for everything you're doing. Thanks for jumping on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dana, and hope to see you. After midnight, we don't let it all hang down. 720 WGN, Dane here with you. Uh, Skyline Studio in for Nick D until... Uh, 4 a.m. today, and as so many iconic and amazing events have been pushed to the sidelines, canceled, postponed, and all of that, you know, the the Olympics, right, the Final Four, 
you know, certain seasons, you know, the championships in every all the way from the professional side down to your favorite high school kids teams, everything has gotten pushed back or canceled. And some of that has kind of rocked us to our foundations as we try to find our way to to sort of uh, plan for or experience things in 2021 or make our way through um, professional uh, situations on the on the competition side uh, going into this year. And Tom, you've got this. And so it's here's one thing. It's one thing when your amazing and iconic event, like let's say the Olympics, gets canceled and it uh, the entire world is disappointed. It's another when you have to tell people that your event is canceled because they were unaware that it existed in the first place. It's 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 <laughs> unbelievable. I can't. I I just happened to cross this. It is uh, the Microsoft Office Specialist Championship. I think that's what it's called. Well, it's so what? Okay, so here it says Gladiators of PowerPoint Microsoft Championship will have to wait one more year. So of course, I know a collective side. All of the listeners, they are disappointed uh, that oh my gosh, as they are training, they can maybe step back a little bit and uh, and just get their get their efforts, kind of hone their skills for twenty twenty one. But uh, I did not know. So I know that it's important to be good at office skills and, and whether it's Microsoft PowerPoint and all that. And if uh, and so my wife, Esther, she's, you know, does a lot of office style work and, you know, all of these different things. It's important to be good at them. You want to be, I, I think, proficient or competent. But I don't know if I'd call yourself a gladiator. What do you think? Well, I mean, some of these kids are pretty good and they, they, a lot of them For are young people. It's like, oh, that's an amazing power. I mean, listen, it- I took an entire class in high school called computer business applications. And I'm going to tell you this. It was one of the best classes I ever took in terms of preparing me for the future, for for a realistic future of having to work with computers, having to work with industry standards like Word, Excel, PowerPoint, all these things that are kind of boring but are necessary for uh, you to be in the workforce today. I mean, imagine if you did not know how to use Microsoft Word, a basic word processor. Yeah. And there's all these weird little t- uh, tips and tricks that these kids are able to use. Um, but what do you mean? Describe or, or share one of with like a tip or trick. I mean, something because they've got it in here. The word wizardry is used with I Excel. Mean, wizardry is a good way to put it. <laughs> wizardry is a good way to put it. So it says every year people aged 13 to 22 show off their wizardry with Excel, PowerPoint, Word and the rest of the Microsoft Office suite. Uh, last year, Allison uh, Dumas, rising senior at Green Hope High School in North Carolina, took a bronze in the PowerPoint contest. So I guess it's, so I, I'm wondering how, because these are things that are good to be proficient at. And I've, you know, just over the course of just being a, a student of life and working in a bunch of different applications, I know how to use them to, to some basic level of proficiency. Sure. I didn't know that there's, you know, some sort of like super ninja level. To well, go. especially when it comes to things like Excel, being well, able to do these crazy things in spreadsheets, which sounds like the most boring competition of all time. Uh, I don't know if they had a live stream planned. I maybe would have watched this if they if they were doing. <laughs> put, why aren't they doing this? Put all the kids in separate rooms and just have them do their their. They're with computers, you know. It's not like they're hitting each other. Although maybe this is a contact sport. You know, you see someone doing something really cool with PowerPoint, so you just push them. In their office chair, uh, yeah, maybe, 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 hit them with paper clips. Maybe the the chairs are rolling, the desks are rolling, the action is hot. Well, I, I know Excel is if, so. My wife does that, and there's a bunch of different kind of different uh, formulas, you know, formulas, and, and things, hotkeys, and all these little yeah. weird things that you can do. I know people who are 
of my age cohort, I would say, so like 25 to 30, 35, somewhere in there, that have built entire careers on knowing how to do these things because their superiors don't. Wow. They get to just, they get to just uh, make an easy work day of themselves because their, say their boss will, or their supervisor will be like, hey, can you uh, run these numbers for me? Uh, expecting that it will take them all day, maybe even two days to do. But then these kids, ostensibly, these young people that they're asking to do it, know how to run those numbers inside of maybe an hour, wow. maybe two hours. So, with we, so hopefully it does really pay. Certainly, maybe on time saved. You know, Time saved, for sure. And it's good. For, it's, it looks good to your superior if you are able to take a task that they thought was going to take you eight hours and you do it in less than half the time. Hmm. That's a, I say that's a raise. Yeah, I say that's an immediate raise. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily landing on the moon, you know. It's no. one of those, but it's 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 office work, but taken to that next level, uh, maybe almost like alien proficiency level. We're going to be talking with Philip Mantle coming up uh, at three o'clock, calling us live from London. Uh, Roswell: Alien Autopsy is the book, the truth. Uh, behind the film that shocked the world. He's written another one, too, about just being abducted and some of the stories that people have there. Excited to talk with him, especially with that backdrop and the context of things that are happening here with UFOs as well. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Johnny Carson probably wasn't great at XL, but he was great at other things, and, of course, a TV icon, so we're going to highlight some of those moments uh, when we come back. It's Dane here, 720 WGN. Is this Hungry Eyes? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Written by the uh, the great Frankie Previtt. Oh. Who also wrote the Oscar-winning song, I've Had the Time of My Life. No, is this in the movie Top Gun? Was this, or no, which movie no, was this I, in? I, I think this is in Dirty Dancing. Dirty. I don't know what else it's in. Okay. Well, uh, but yeah, so it's performed by Eric Carmen. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Eric Carmen. 312-91-7200, Eric Carmen. What other songs did he write for what other hit movies? Go ahead and share that <laughs> with us as well. It is Dane here with you until 4 a.m. in for Nick D, uh, Skyline Studio. And uh, when it comes to iconic television and some of the some of the greatest moments in television, regardless of the era and when they happened, and there's a lot of people out there, purists, who would say in the, in the talk show format, especially uh, on the television side, they would say there has never been, may never be, any better than Johnny Carson. And so he is, even though he has been off the air for decades, right? This is still a guy that people look to. He is, whether it's their their mentor from afar, their inspiration, um, and really kind of the uh, the gold standard, right, for what it is that, that he did. And he created it in a way that I think he followed up. Jack Parr was the guy, the original guy. So he followed him, but really made it the institution um, that it was. And so you guys, and of course, Nick, do you guys regularly play sort of clips? And it's excited to have kind of the Johnny Carson kind of catalog as part of things that we have access to. Yeah, you can watch uh, Johnny Carson every night on Antenna TV. And for someone like myself, who I was born after he was already off the air. I have no, I have no memory of ever seeing Johnny Carson do anything. Uh, and on he live was TV. and he was a, a you never like once he walked off that stage, a couple like National Enquirer pictures of him on a yacht or something like that. He was insanely private. I don't think yeah, he even I, talked at all. Basically. He he appeared on Letterman. I want to say twice. I want to say twice, at least once, but because uh, he and Dave Letterman were obviously very very tight. 
uh, good friends. He want he was he wanted Letterman to take over the Tonight Show. That's what um, Letterman wanted. That's what Letterman wanted. That's it, what Johnny wanted. But they they went with Jay Leno instead. And uh, I I will say. You know, when it comes to the late night wars that came to bite them in the butt a little bit, you know, some years later when there was the whole Jay Leno Conan debacle uh, and Jay Leno just did not want to give up his seat. Uh, he said he was going to. And then when it finally came time, it was like Brett Favre retiring. Oh, my God. It was, <laughs> it was it's, like... it's embarrassing. It's really embarrassing. And I'm not trying to say Jay Leno is a bad person, but because uh, it's, you know, this is showbiz. You're like, you don't have to say that. Dave, David Letterman will say it for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Dave Letterman has spoken quite a bit about how he felt about what what went down there on the Tonight Show. That is, I mean, it was such a crazy phenomenon. And you think to yourself, if it again, with the, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, Jay had what was you know took over for Johnny Carson and had and kept it as really the number one rated show because of the content and the guests. And and Jay's a professional, so you can't necessarily knock him on the career side. What he was yeah, he able did, to, he did a good job. He wasn't my favorite. Uh, I didn't. Re- I I watched mostly Letterman or. Uh, Nick D and I's favorite behind Johnny Carson, of course, is uh, Craig Ferguson. Yes, Craig. Ver- well, Craig Ferguson was probably the best of the post uh, the post um, Carson era. All great, if we're being honest, and, all, and even Conan in those early was. Yeah, all, Conan did a really good job for a really long time. Was was great, and so I think as Letterman wanted that job, and so that's something that he really you know felt that he had you know kind of paid his dues and was able to go ahead and do. I thought it was kind of cool, and I think Letterman really kind of kept that sort of more edgy. Than, than he would have maybe had to be if he would have changed things. I don't know that he would have, but the show that he was doing was more kind of fun and edgy than maybe the traditional Tonight Show kind of format. So we're going to have a couple clips. What what do you got on store for us tonight? So first we're going to go to uh, one of the most celebrated guests of Tonight Show history, David Brenner. Uh, after making his national television debut in 1971 on, on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, he became the show's most frequent guest with 158 appearances, the most frequently appearing guest in tonight's show history guest hosted for Johnny Carson 75 times wow. between 1975 and 1984, which puts him fifth on the list of Carson's most frequent guest hosts. So pretty, pretty incredible. So, and that was a time when there just wasn't, you know, for the listeners out there, many will remember, but many of the younger ones may not know the context of it is that there were only a handful of channels, you know, and it wasn't the kind of thing where you had so much, you know, so many other options on the entertainment side. If you were on The Tonight Show, it made your career. If you were a comedian, the minute you were there and when you were off, your life was completely different. And don't even talk about if you got called over to the couch. <laughs> if you got the head nod, you got called over to the couch, your career, you were, that's how Drew Carey got his start. Yep. Did an amazing set on The Tonight Show, got called over to the couch. Is there anything like that, Tom, that you're aware of or that you guys have talked about? Is there a situation that has that same kind of impact? That kingmaker status? Yeah, because even Letterman, like when you were on and and you had, it was just like things were, if you could make it there, you knew that you could go from unknown to basically a household name overnight. You know, I I don't think so. Um, Probably because there's so many more options when it comes to what you can watch. I mean, let's not even talk about the dawn of... Comedy Central's late night stuff with The Daily Show, originally hosted by Craig Kilborn, moved over to The Great John Stewart. Uh, Is that what, Col- that's his title, The Great John Stewart? The Great John Stewart, yeah. He was yeah, so I think good in that. Oh my he, that was, I mean, that'll be his crowning achievement of his career. He and had, Stephen Colbert was, Stephen Colbert I, his with career the Colbert was kind of born on that. Even uh, yeah. Steve Carell. Steve Carell launched his career there. 
So that became the kingmaker place for comedy. And then things have kind of moved on from there. Now everybody and their mother has a podcast. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I don't I don't think there's any single person that has that level of cultural influence that Johnny Carson had uh, back during his heyday. Uh, even even into the early '90s when he finally retired, if uh, if you showed up on the Tonight Show, you did a good set, you were golden. You were right. golden goose. So uh, we'll play a little David Brenner here. This is from 1983, one of his uh, great stand-up routines. Do you remember the old days when you heard someone say "total recall" and meant that someone had a good memory? <laughs> And you know, about what, six, eight weeks ago, General Motors recalled 248,000 cars. A minor problem. (laughs) Minor. When you step on the brakes, they don't stop. Hey. (laughs) Now you understand why their motto is, we stand behind our cars. And then about eight years too late, we started manufacturing the compact, the small cars that compete with the uh, European and Japanese market. Have you driven an American small car? You turn on a windshield wiper, the car rocks from side. <laughs> a friend of mine bought one and he got one of those old 1940 hood ornaments. He put on a small car and the back two wheels lifted off the ground. <laughs> the only good thing about American small cars, when you take it back to the dealer and you tell him what to do with it, he can. <laughs> Uh, I don't I don't own a car. I'm into trucks though. I like trucks. I think America makes great trucks too. And I like I don't own the truck. I like I always want to be a truck driver. I think there's something about the it's like the frontiersmen. They're the last of the cowboys, the last of the rugged individuals in America. They are. Look at that uh, that uh, independent trucker strike. Did you see those truck drivers? People are shooting guns at them, throwing hand grenades and they're in there. We're gonna get these kumquats to market. <laughs> it's a different breed of man. Of course, I don't buy anything mechanical, cars. I have no luck. If it has two moving parts, it breaks on me. Everything. Like a couple weeks ago, I bought a hair blower. It sucks. (laughs) Did you ever, did you ever get a cured ham and wonder what it had? You know, I read something the other day. I thought it was interesting. Uh, I'm very much into nature, even though I'm a city kid. I, uh, uh, very much. That's why I, too, am not exactly wild about James Watt being the Secretary of the Interior. It's, uh, it's almost like having Charles Manson as the director of a playground. Uh, <laughs> I'll face it, the man hates nature. He really doesn't like nature. He doesn't like... Did you hear he's trying to get Vice President Bush to change his last name to Cement? Is that true? <laughs> But I was, uh, I was reading, because I'm into nature, I don't, I don't go out in the woods, I, you know, I'm not going to con you, I don't go out and uh, sleep in a tent or, or fish, uh, I could never fish, I'm not, I, if I ever saw a lobster come up on the end of a string, I'd throw up, I can <laughs> You know what I don't understand, why is it when you go into a restaurant and you order a lobster or shrimp or crab, they always give it to you with the legs on it? I hate that. I mean, when you get a steak, they don't have a hoof hanging off of it. <laughs> So anyway, I I, uh, I was reading about this, in, uh, you know, in Nature. So I was reading in, in the National Enquirer, uh, in National Geographic. Uh, 
a little Freudian slip there. I guess. Well, when I was a kid, the only dirty book we actually had was National Geographic. Oh, we used to run down the alley, all the guys with the National Geographic. I was about 15 years old before I found out when a woman gets naked, she's not holding a spear. <laughs> but I read in National Geographic this month, you read an article. They have an article on the, uh, the bald eagle. Where it's diminishing the number of bald eagles in America, our, our, our national bird. And the reason is the bald eagles are not mating. And I had in this article that scientists have been watching them closely for over a decade. And I thought, that's the problem. <laughs> Come on, how would you like it? You're in bed with your lover and a couple of bald eagles looking in the window. <laughs> what a job. Scientists are a little strange. You know who has to be the strangest scientist who ever lived? The man, whoever he was, who invented acupuncture. How did he think of that? Right, he comes home. I got a terrible headache. I think I'll take this long needle and put it through my toe. <laughs> oh, my stomach hurts. I don't like to go I don't like to go to any doctor for any, you know what the worst moment for me at a doctor's examination the worst this is the one I hate the most when you see your doctor put on that rubber glove because <laughs> you realize that in a few moments you're going to know exactly how a puppet feels <laughs> Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you in for Nick T until four a.m. Skyline Studio and uh, and talking about as as Nick does and of course as the as the listeners appreciate highlighting some of the things that we have access to now with Antenna TV is all of that uh, that great entertainment and that catalog with uh, with Tonight Show and Johnny Carson and. Um, before we heard David Brenner, who was I did not know that Tom had filled us in that he was the the most often recurring guest on the show, not only as a as a guest on the couch uh, being interviewed, but also hosting the show too, which is which is interesting. I think you got to have sort of a unique standing right to be able to not only fill those shoes of a Johnny Carson, but also perform the functions of of interviewing your contemporaries in the entertainment world. And David Brenner um, certainly did that. What what made Johnny Carson? Um, I think unique and, and interesting. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. If people have maybe a favorite guest that they have, or a favorite kind of segment or skit or whatever that he did, is he is he wasn't just he, he just a, a host and an interviewer. He was all those things, but also he was an entertainer in a bunch of different ways too. In the roles, whether it was Karnak or even whether it was like when you'd have like a Tim Conway or a Harvey Corman come on and they would do sort of these like kind of skits, right? They would do those kind yeah. of things during the show. Yeah, well, and everybody remembers stuff like Aunt Blabby. Aunt Blabby was a <laughs> perennial favorite, um, a really funny character that he would do. But as uh, listeners probably know, my favorite is yeah. Art Fern and his Tea Time movie. Uh, I find it to be one of the most irreverent things he's ever done on the show. It is, it pushes the boundaries of probably what was acceptable on on television at the time. It's hard to think, you know, there are some things that you feel like you have a context for and then you remember and then now you see them today and they feel or look a little bit different because, you know, it's just, oh my gosh, that's different. I didn't consider that. You know, Spaceballs for one, right? Spaceballs was a great movie. 
uh, well, I don't know, relatively great. I thought it was interesting and enjoyment, and I felt because it was like a sort of a Star Wars theme that it was kid friendly. And then I tried to show it to my kid, and inside of maybe two or three minutes, we had to be like, yeah, yeah, it's inappropriate. We can't watch this. Yeah, my folks accidentally showed me Blazing Saddles when I was twelve. <laughs> I mean, so but and that was edgy for its time, and now would be shockingly edgy. Yeah, you know, in a, in a lot of different ways. And so when you say irreverent and you say Art Fern, like, so what, how does it? Because a lot of what Johnny did, you know, in the interviews with the personalities, certainly you see them with that backdrop of the time period for which they were, you know, whether it's the conversations or what's popular or just even the, you know, some of the topics or the way people, you know, were speaking. Um, But a lot of it kind of holds up and is still sort of family friendly entertainment. Yeah. He always got close to the line. It it was all about being cheeky, not being uh, uh, explicit. It was about suggesting, not outright stating but it was still late night tv yes it was uh so uh art fern's tea time movie is just unreal is an unreal clip so if yeah if you will uh here's uh art fern's tea time movie 1974 thank you and hello feature film freaks art fern here today with today's fabulous feature film find nelson eddie ed barbar ozzy nelson ozzy davis betty davis schmutz the wonder pig <laughs> In Flash Gordon zips open his spacesuit. But first, friends, is your marriage in trouble? Has the romance gone out of your relationship? Does your bed only move during an earthquake? <laughs> yes, that's right, I'm telling you. Has foreplay with your spouse ever involved a lamp? Well, men, does your wife, does your wife keep a can of mace on the nightstand? Are you tired of hearing the words, is that it? Well, friends, that's right. We have something will help your sex life. Yes, we do. And here she is now, our matinee lady. She is just one of the thousands of people whose marriage was helped by the Masters and Yutzman Clinic. <laughs> Masters and Yutzman Marriage Clinic. Tell us, matinee lady, how was it? Well, I just loved Masters but hated Yutzman. Yes. I've heard Yutzman's gang therapy is a little rough, but we'll get back to that. <laughs> Friends... Masters and Yutzman's Marriage Clinic will bring back the magic of your honeymoon through this. A recording of your wife crying in a bathroom. Our skilled counselors can patch up any marital problem. Ladies, no longer will your husband take five days to drive home the babysitter. And men, and men, no longer will your wife sew up the slits in your pajamas. You just come to the Masters and Yutzman. Come to the Masters and Yusman Clinic and never again will your anniversary be celebrated with gunfire. <laughs> You'll be in good hands with our skilled counselors. That's for sure. Our counselors can solve any marriage problem because they've all been married six or seven times. <laughs> and each of our counselors is an expert in his field. In fact, many of them have been arrested in a field. <laughs> Friends, do you have a sex problem? Do you have a sex problem that needs straightening out? I've never had a sex problem I couldn't straighten out. I'm hip. <laughs> Masters and Yutzman, we have the latest techniques. Men, impotence, your problem. Well, ladies, don't worry. We've got a guy named Eddie who isn't. He sure isn't. No, enough about Eddie. At Masters and Yutzman, we start out by teaching with the art of touching, by putting you in one of our encounter groups. And if you encounter what they have, we also have shots that'll take care of that. You will learn, friends. You'll learn our sexual techniques and guaranteed privacy. Just you, your counselor, and the film crew behind the two-way mirror. 
And don't worry, only you and your counselor will ever see the film. But if you don't pay us, an Elks Club in Glendale will see it. <laughs> Mine was showing twice Yes, I hear it was They broke their antlers Friends At Masters and Yutzman We'll show you how to put the excitement Back in your marriage You've heard of magic fingers? Well, each of our beds has Five magic fingers Which makes one magic fist Ladies, we'll show you We'll show you how to excite your husband With things like this Ooh An oyster-studded negligee We'll give you that's right, friends. You can't, they can't all be winners. We'll give, you, we'll give you helpful hints for making your bedroom more sensual like this rear-view mirror for your bedpost. And friends, you'll also receive the following books. I'm okay, you're okay, but the guy in the wetsuit isn't. Everything you boys wanted to know about harnesses, a biggie. How batteries saved our marriage. Yes, friends, I want to tell you... Remember, friends, if your marriage is on the rocks, comes to Masters and Yutzman Marriage Clinic. How do you get there, you ask? You take the San Diego Freeway to the Ventura Freeway to the Slauson Cutoff. Get out of your car, cut off your Slauson, get back in your car, and drive four miles until you see a giant neon cordless novelty item. And now back to our flick. The Jackson Five, the Four Tops, the Three Stooges, the Double Mint Twins, and Furball, the Wonder Cat, and Tarzan breaks his loincloth. Uh, naughty. It was a little naughty, right? I mean, it was. Oh yeah. But like you said, skirting the issue, uh, you know, being cheeky in a bunch of different ways. But but like so much fun, right? It was it was really Un- unbelievable. Well, I mean, the best part of every Art Ferns tea time is take your car to the Slauson cutoff. Get out of your car. Cut off your Slauson. <laughs> <laughs> so he was one of those guys that did that. Now, do you know anything as far as? the as far as the writing on the show is it was it some of the stuff that he was because he was you know in control of all of that right and as far as you know whether the the guests who was on who came over to the couch you know he was really kind of running that show and i won't say micromanage but it was you know right. he, he was just in tune with every aspect of it but he had like a team of writers right yeah he had a, t- a team of writers and um one of the things that he was really good at was being able to save a segment that wasn't working. Um, he would he he yeah, would, yeah, po- yeah, he would yeah, point he just... attention to the fact that it didn't work, so then people would laugh. And it, even if he told a joke that bombed, he would just be quiet. He just wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't move on and try to pick it up. He'd let it sit there for a second and let people laugh at the awkwardness of the situation, and then he would move on. It was on. that trust level, that familiarity yeah. that he had with the listeners and with the viewers yeah. that allowed him to kind of be that. You know, before we go to the news and then get on to uh, to Philip Mantle, where we're going to be talking about something that's in the news now on the UFO side. Tommy, your thoughts, because late night TV is still such a big part um, in all of its incarnations, what we do, like who who out there do you feel like is the most talented, or is it just sort of a kind of a I don't know because Jimmy Fallon can sing, yes, right, and uh, you know. I, I find I I don't I'm not a huge fan of Jimmy Fallon. Um, I I get I, people like Conan him. That's is, cool. Is I, like I like Conan a lot. I like Colbert. Uh, Colbert. Uh, Colbert. I thought was better when he was doing his show on Comedy Central. I yes. thought that was much funnier. I guess if I had to pick one, to be uh, Jimmy Kimmel. I think Jimmy Kimmel has some of the funniest bits and uh, does it a little bit more of a traditional talk show in the vein of Johnny Carson. But uh, honestly, if I'm going to be watching any show like that, probably going to watch reruns of Johnny because it's just too good. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's classic. And of course, you can see so many stars, even ones that are prominent today, that were part of those great shows. And and I don't know that there's been uh, a show that, that that had that much impact in it. So when we come back from the news, we're going to talk with Philip Mantle. Keep it here. Dane 720 WGN. Seven twenty, WGN. It is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio in for Nick D until four a.m. And uh, excited to have uh, our next guest on. Always an interesting topic, and it would always be a great time to have uh, Philip Mantle on with us. Uh, but now, I think with the backdrop of of some of the more recent news and things that are happening here in America uh, and uh, and in the news with whether it's the aliens or the aircraft or the Pentagon and some of those things. It just makes it even more relevant. Uh, he is a UFO expert, authority, author of Roswell, Alien Autopsy, The Truth Behind, uh, the film that shocked the world and without consent, a comprehensive survey of missing time and abductive phenomenon in the UK. Calling us from that UK is the one and only Philip Mantle. Welcome to WGN. Uh, good morning. Good morning. It is morning. Hey, it's morning. Look at this. It's morning all over the place. So we have that in common. Excited to have you on, Philip. So thanks uh, for taking time and taking what it is that you do and have shared with uh, the world, your world, with us here at WGN and 38 states and and Canada as as we broadcast. I wanted to kind of get a little bit of perspective before we get into some of the projects in, in the books. I mean, the topic, kids love it. My kids love it. They're fascinated with all things uh, related to UFOs and aliens and can't get enough of the information. But for a guy who's not only excited and passionate about it, but made it his life's work, like like share with the listeners, like how it all started for you. Did you have an experience that kind of uh, lit that fuse for you? Or how did you get involved with the with the whole thing? No, Dan, as a, as a young man here in the UK, I, um, you know, I was always interested in all things what we call paranormal. You know, uh, you know, I remember doing talks about things uh, when I was at high school. You know, when we came back from our summer holidays, the teachers would say, you know, what did you do during your holidays? And people say, oh, I went, you know, horse riding, you know, we went away on holiday. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I went to the spiritualist church, you know. <laughs> so I was always different in that respect. And then uh, once I left high school, remember reading a book, um, the title of which is long since gone. Um, and it had one chapter on UFOs. And I, I, I thought, well, that sounds intriguing. Uh, so rather naively, I thought, I'll write a few letters, you know, maybe read a few books, and that will provide me with all the information I needed. And, of course, it is long before the Internet, so there, there wasn't an awful lot of information to get your hands on. And um, when I was um, 20, I, I, I went to work in Germany for a while, couldn't speak the language, so I asked my, my mother to send me some books. Uh, and quite fortunately, she sent me a box full of paperback books all about UFOs. So when I returned home, um, I saw in my, my our local newspaper here, where I live in West Yorkshire, that there was um, a meeting of the newly formed uh, Yorkshire UFO Society. It's the county I live in. Uh, coming up that Sunday, so I, I went along, you know, and sat down and listened to the presentation. 
and and that was me me hooked, and that was you know forty plus years ago. So I'm still writing those letters, Dane, and, and still reading those books, still trying to find those answers. Uh, and, and, and I'll stick at it, I think. Well, you, when it first came to that information, you mentioned you know the Internet didn't exist, just the access to information, not only information, but also other people that you could kind of communicate with, was was just really limited. So what was known? When you first started getting into it, everybody talks about Roswell, and of course we, I don't want to say take it for granted, but it happened here, so it's kind of the thing we think of as our indigenous kind of occurrence, but is it the kind of thing, Roswell, of course, the subject of one of your books, even back then, was it like the main thing that people were talking about as far as the conversation started? Not really, no. I mean, I, I began my interest in the subject in sort of 1979, and Roswell was still dead in, in 1979, even though it happened in 1947. Um, you know, all the witnesses, the story died overnight, and it wasn't until around that time that the late uh, Stanton Friedman came across a gentleman called Jesse Marcel. He was the base intelligence officer at Roswell Army Air Force back in 1947, and he was the first man on the scene to handle the crash debris. And um, so, you know, the story had literally died. So, you know, Roswell wasn't in, in anyone's uh, vocabulary at that time. And, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of books you could lay your hands on. I didn't know anyone else who was interested in the subject. So when I turned up at that meeting, it was organized by two brothers, uh, Graham and Mark Birdsell. They'd already been involved in UFO investigation for, for a number of years. So I could learn the ropes from someone. And, of course, they had a stall selling books, which was great because my local library, you know, had one or two, but that was about it. And um, and, and I just found it, you know, fascinating, Dane, you know. And, and the more I read and the more I listened to, I was also fortunate by this time in the early 1980s that areas in and around our county in North Yorkshire in a, an area called the Yorkshire Dales National Park, for whatever reason, seemed to be having a lot of UFO sightings. And a lot of those found their, their way down to us at the Yorkshire UFO Society. So, A, I had two, two gentlemen I could learn the ropes from, and B, we also had the phenomena happening on our doorstep, which allowed us to go along and investigate it firsthand. So that's you know Roswell was not on the agenda at all. Well, that came later. Wow. Okay. So you were still experiencing it, and at the time it was probably just people who felt like they had seen things that they couldn't explain. As far as and was that where really where it started? We're going to take a break in a second, but when we get back to it with Philip Mantle, we'll talk about that. Those initial conversations, Roswell hadn't come back into the public public consciousness yet, so it was probably word of mouth of people that either experienced things or seen things, maybe on the UFO side, as far as the you know, unidentified flying objects, or maybe even some encounters that they couldn't explain and wanted to share with the group as well. So, Philip, hold tight. We're going to take a very quick break. We're going to come back. We'll have more with Philip Mantle live uh, from the U.K. on uh, on aliens and UFOs. So keep it here, Dane, 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you. Excited to have on the line with us. Uh, he's a UFO expert, authority, author, the one and only Philip Mansa. Philip, welcome back. 
My pleasure. So here's the thing as we get into this journey and 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 bless you for all of the things that you have done because it wasn't easy back then. You've got to think of the differences that people have now as far as the internet for information. Everybody has really a high quality camera to be able to capture whatever is going on uh with themselves and and when you first started out and and some of the books that were written were probably just personal accounts and some of the information that you had were just kind of word of mouth things and then of course you had Really, at the time, and if you could describe it a little bit, society wasn't as accepting. Now people are kind of open to the idea that everything, that this is really happening, and there's some irrefutable uh, proof and all that. But when you were first starting out, this, you know, there were a lot of skeptics out there, still are. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of skepticism, and, and there was a, still a stigma attached to the subject. You know, you were, um, when we tried to, to get, you know, items published in the, in the newspapers, it was always looked upon as what they called a silly season subject. So that was in the summer. You know, the football had finished, you know, Parliament was in recess, so the media looked for sensational stories to, to fill the gap, uh, and it was UFOs that used to take the place. Um, and it was a very different world. You know, we, we made ourselves very proactive. So we would leave our contact details at reference libraries, you know, police stations, uh, airports. I mean, you name it. And one of the things we always used to do when, when anyone contacted us about wanting to report a sighting is asked them, you know, where they'd found our contact details. So we knew what was working uh, and continued. And we were very vocal, you know, with lots of local media. And, of course, slowly but surely, we built up a network of contacts. And uh, <clears throat> we had members, you know, in and around these areas that also kept their ears to the ground, of course. And, and, and um, that's how the information then started to flow to us. And once we, you know... Once we started talking to people, they realized that we weren't some, you know, lunatic fringe. We were trying to treat the subject with as, as, as you know, a degree of, of sensibility as we could. Uh, I mean, I've lectured at, at several, you know, large universities in front of both the staff and the students. Um, so, it, you know, it, the, the acceptance of, of UFOs goes up and down, Dane, you know, peaks and troughs. At the moment, it's in a peak. But who knows what will happen next year? So we'll make the best of it while we can. But then, as we moved on into the 1990s, we had people like the late Dr. John Mack, you know, Harvard 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 professor, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and others come out of the woodwork and, and be actively involved in researching the subject, which would give it a, a degree of respectability. Like we have today, you know, the U.S. Navy have come out and said, yes, you know, the films that, that we've released are authentic and, we, you know, we've confirmed that these things do exist. So, again, you know, it gives the subject that, that, that uh, degree of, of or, you know, authentication, if you like. And we just sit here and say, well, I told you so. You know, we've been trying to tell you <laughs> right. this for decades, you know. Well, you, that's exactly it, because, you, you know, I think there's got to be a little bit of, of validation that you feel based on the kind of thing like, well, of course, we were saying this all along because you, and you mentioned a little bit about the stigma where or like early on, I'm sure there were people that were out there and proactively gathering the information and advocates for sharing it and, and talking about it like yourselves and your contemporaries. But as people would maybe have some experience that they couldn't understand or couldn't explain, they would get a hold of you. But did you find 
mind, though, Philip, too, that some of those people early on, even if they had experienced every bit of it, they were reluctant to come forward because of that stigma. So they did. They would maybe tell well, you to absolutely. try to get. Yes. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I remember. I remember some research I was doing uh, back in the in the self early 1990s and, and there were a lot of people who simply would not go on the record we knew of their existence and they were worried about their job prospects what their neighbors would think uh, i mean you think about it you know you have a close encounter who do you tell you know do you tell you you know your partner if you have one your family your doctor well you know i you know i spoke to people who had gone down that route and, and, and finally, they ended up with us because we were the only ones that would sit and listen without laughing, uh, you know, without judgment, without making any silly comments. And they were kind of relieved. So there was, there was times when you almost acted, acted like, a, you know, a, a counseling service for some people. They just wanted to, to talk to someone, didn't necessarily want to go public um, because of the stigma. And, and, and I mean, I'll give you one, one example. One lady that did go public. Very highly educated lady, lived in the Midlands of, the, of England, and uh, she lived in a small village, and uh, she released the story in a local newspaper. There was a knock on the door one night, and there was a gentleman stood there. She didn't know him, and he just laughed and turned around and walked away. So that was what we were up against. But, you know, thankfully things are not, not as bad as that these days, but the stigma is still there. Well, you had some of the situations where people would feel like, you know, if they told other people, and even if they came from a great background or had a lot of legitimacy built into whatever they were doing in their walk of life, that people would think they were crazy. And then probably, and I'm sure you ran into this, Philip, it was probably gratifying for them to be able to talk to you because even themselves probably felt like it wasn't possible. Like whatever they had experienced or seen that maybe they themselves were kind of going crazy, right? But you were able to share that not only was it something that, that you had heard about or maybe experienced, but there's other people out there. Well, yeah, I mean, we were able to um, put some individuals in touch with each other and they formed like a, a little group amongst themselves, almost like a self-help group, you know? And, um, I, I remember, you know, one of the ladies that, that, I, that I interviewed being very grateful that she was able to speak to others because she thought she was the only one. Right. She hadn't read any books or anything like that. And, of course, when we wrote the book Without Consent, which is all about the abduction phenomena here in the UK, the one thing we tried to emphasize in the book is that the people who have these encounters, these experiences, are just like you and me. They wouldn't stand out in a crowd, you know, they don't wear a tinfoil hat. They're just going about their everyday life when these things happen, you know, going to meet your fiancé, taking a walk in the fields behind the house, driving home from work, and, and so on. And they were just looking for an answer, you know, and, and they tried all different avenues to try and find that answer. And at the end of the day, you know, they ended up with, with, uh, with UFO researchers like myself, and, um, you know, they hoped by talking to others, of course, that had, had similar encounters that they might be able to, to help them with, with the answers as well. But the people I interviewed were just like you and me. They wouldn't stand out in a crowd. A lot of them didn't want to, to be named, so we've used, you know, pseudonyms for them, which is fine. Some aren't that bothered, you know, and, um, but they are just 
your average member of, of Joe Public and um, the ordinary people who have had an extraordinary experience. Well, we're going to talk about some of those experiences and some of the common and mutual kind of aspects and elements to it um, in our next segment coming up. Before we go to that break, though, it's you mentioned feeling sort of validated and maybe vindicated a little bit where you're getting more people deciding that um, because of the information that's out with the Pentagon, it's one thing to have a great reputation to be able to say, Hey, from my perspective and platform, I experienced this or I believe in this. But now you're seeing something that I that is unprecedented, where you're seeing you, the military themselves, the people who are most kind of keeping this close to the vest or tight about anything related to this, and then some of those pilots, and then you have the video. I mean, Philip, talk a little bit about that, the stuff that's come out. It's got to be, I think it's got to be exciting. It may be the thing you knew was going on all along, but now so many more people are just kind of like, like yeah, they believe it. I mean, it all began in December uh, 2017 when the New York Times ran a feature uh, detailing that the U.S. Department of Defense had had a secret UFO study program that spent several million dollars on it. And the gentleman who headed that program is called called Advanced Aerial Identification Threat Program. Uh, was a chap called Louis Elizondo, and Louis went public. So I headed this this study program for the Department of Defense, and he released um, three videos, all taken by U.S. Navy pilots, complete with audio, so you can hear the pilots, conv- you know, talking to each other, and they have a genuine article. You know, they're saying, "Look at these things, dude. You know, look at them go." It's going against the wind, it's, you know, and they're as, as baffled as anyone. I mean, you know, these are the gentlemen and ladies who are on the, the front line of, of, of U.S. defense. Let's, let's make no mistake about it, you know. And if they can't identify what's in front of them, then we're in, you know, there's something serious going on. Later, the U.S. Navy confirmed that these were official yeah. uh, Navy films. They gave the details of where they were filmed and by whom. And, you know, they said, yeah, you know, basically, they call them uh, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Just another word, another phrase for UFO. Uh, and, and they are real. They are authentic. So the question then moves on, well, if UFOs are real, then what are they? Where do they come from? Who made them? You know, that, that's the next big debate. And, I, and I'm sure that's going to hot up. Uh, as the year progresses yeah it opens up all of those questions like who's who's driving them why are they here what is the the motivation isn't just to do sightseeing around it but to have the videos come out and have it be from the defense department the pentagon that's typically you know if they release anything it's all redacted and nobody is disputing it's undisputable as far as you know who are the pilots what they are saying and what they are seeing and their surprise and shock is the kind of thing that you know we can all take like hey this is something like you said Philip, if they if they don't know what it is, then geez, you know what are we looking at here? So we're going to talk about this. Philip Mantle, he is the author of "Without Consent: A Comprehensive Survey of Missing Time and Abduction Phenomenon in the UK." Because that's part of it is what are the experiences that people have? We will get into Roswell and alien autopsy. This is another way that people have interacted with whoever it is that is driving and building those ships. So keep it here. Philip Mantle's joining us live from the UK. It's staying here on seven twenty. WGN.
720 WGN, it is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio and on the line with us. Now excited to have calling us all the way from uh, from the United Kingdom, UFO expert, authority, uh, author, Philip Mansell. And Philip, uh, welcome back. It's my pleasure, Dane. Well, here's one of the things where I can see and I feel like there has been a sea change. So Marco Rubio, a senator from Florida, he's, you know, on the Intelligence Committee, and he was presented with some of the, you know, obvious and necessary questions related to this. And instead of coming out, what you typically say, that either it's classified and I can't talk about it, or debunking it and say, well, there's obviously some explanation, he basically said, well, we'd, (laughs) he basically said, well, we'd rather have it be UFOs than to know that China or Russia had the technology to make vehicles like that saying like, well, you know, you know, if, if it's aliens and apparently it must be, uh, it's better than if the Russians or the Chinese had developed such, you know, cause then we'd have more to worry about. Well, your book, which was without consent, a comprehensive survey of missing time and abductive phenomena in the UK. Let's talk about it. Like your thoughts, the experiences, not everybody's seeing them at, you know, 30,000 feet, you know, flying at 10,000 miles an hour or whatever. Many times the average, and you mentioned average person, just like you and me that may come in contact with them is in one of these sort of abductive scenarios. So describe like what it is, uh, you know, what people shared with you and how you put that into, into the book. Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of most well-known uh, cases here it, it goes back to to uh, in the late 1980 here in West Yorkshire in a small town called Todmorden, and it actually involved a police officer. His name was Alan Godfrey, he was a police constable, and he was on duty at the time in his patrol car. Uh, Alan was working uh, a night shift. And uh, he'd actually been looking for some cows that had been reported missing. And he thought, I'll take one last look before I, I finish my shift. He'd spoken to a, um, an officer uh, in the town that was uh, on foot patrol. He drove up through the centre of town. And um, up ahead of him, he, he, he could see something illuminated on the road. And um, as he approached it, it actually blocked the road in front of him. And it was a large dome-shaped object. It was just off off the tarmac. It had a bank of panels underneath. It, it seemed like it had some kind of windows, and the, the bottom part was was spinning, was rotating. So, you know, Alan stopped the patrol car. He tried to radio back to you know the police station, but couldn't get through. So he did what most police officers might have done. He took out his notepad and began to draw this object. I mean, it's right in front of him on the road. You know, he began to draw what it looked like. And then, bang, the next thing Andrew, uh, Alan sorry, can remember is several hundred yards further down the road. Now, driving the patrol car, I had no recollection of restarting it or anything like that. He turned around, this thing had gone. Now, it had been raining during the night. But where this thing had been hovering over the road, it was dry. It was a dry patch on the road. And you could also see some debris, was, you know, sticks and, and bits of paper was in a, a circular pattern. He went back to the station. He reported it. Uh, and he somehow noticed that his, his heavy-duty police boots were split. Uh, and he also had a, a mark on the, on the inside of his, 
of his, his, his foot, you know, that wasn't there the night before. Uh, and when he got back there, he realised he was late. You know, it's only a small town, it's Todmorden, you know, but he's realised he was late finishing his shift and he couldn't account for that. Um, unbeknown to Alan, um, three other police officers uh, earlier that night on the hills and moors above the town had seen a UFO. Uh, they were looking for stolen motorcycles uh, when they literally saw a, a blue illuminated object shoot across the sky heading towards the town. Whether it's connected or not, we don't know. Um, but Alan was, was then asked to official, put an official report in, which he did. And um, about six months later, this, this, this gap in the, in, in the time that, you know, that Alan was late, it, it, it bothered him. So he was hypnotized, took regressive hypnosis uh, by two professional physicians. They were both psychiatrists. And, and they took him back to the to the event and asked him to sort of relive it. He, he told the account of being taken on board, seeing these strange creatures lying on a bed, being examined, and so on. You know, now Alan was a, a very, very, what can we say, down-to-earth police officer. I'm not sure you would like to have come across him in his official line of duty <laughs> if he'd been doing anything wrong, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no nonsense. Uh, and he said to this very day, he said, Philip, if I had stood in the road and I had a brick in my hand, I could have thrown it at that thing and it would have gone clunk. You know, as for the hypnosis, he says, mate, you make up your own mind. I can't remember that, you know. And, um, but it was so close, you know, and he said, never seen anything like it. You know, to totally unbelievable. Again, it was just you know, uh, a man going about his daily task. He just happened to be a police officer in his patrol car. And, and he knew nothing about UFOs, had no interest, doesn't really have any interest, you know, now, apart from what happened to him. And, um, you know, he, he's, you know he, he was the last person who would want to report such a thing, you know. And no one wants to be part of the Alien Abduction Club. It's, it's one of those clubs you do not want to be a member of. And Alan's as uh, baffled today as he's always been. Uh, and that's sort of the best, you know, best known. He's gone on television since then as Alan and spoken at conferences. But he, he's not a regular on the circuit by, by any means, you know. And uh, that's just one example of, what, of what's in the book. Well, um, as you know, people kind of look what, at it and think to themselves... You know, because that's really they look at it through that lens of is this a crazy person that's just making up stories or is this someone that I can believe if you don't necessarily know them personally, you wouldn't know. But you look at that background like you shared, you know, this is a guy that probably wouldn't even you know, if he didn't have if he wasn't obligated to write a report about it, he may not have even done that, you know, and then you have all of kind of the aspects that go along with it. And the, and the loss of time. How much time was it that he lost? Was it that he? We're, we're, we're talking. We're talking. You know, fifteen, twenty minutes. And uh, because you know, he was a regular on this route. He knew that the town is not a very big one, Dane. You know, he knew it like the back of his hands. Uh, and what's what's curious, as just a little end note, the cows were found later. <laughs> but they were found in a park, and. Um, the gates were all shut. So, <laughs> what? So okay. So so yeah. the, the cows were, and so 
who knows what you know what and and we'll talk a little bit about it but who knows what the purpose of of getting together you know with the cows was part of it that he appreciated when he got a chance to talk with you and let the listeners know we're talking with ufo expert authority uh and author philip mantle is it when you were able to share with him because like you said he came out of the blue to this world and this topic is that you were able to share with him some of the aspects that maybe you had heard that are in the book from other people did he appreciate that and did he even believe it more saying like wow this is this isn't an isolated incident well you know alan's long since scratched his head about what happened to me you know there's no doubt that that ufo was there in front of him it was a solid this wasn't an apparition they could see the after effects on the road where it had dried out the tarmac and the swirl of debris and um you know as you know our, our offices don't carry guns i think if you know if it had been an american one he, he was rather than say throwing a brick at it he might have said if i got my gun out i could have shot it you right, know right. it was that close to it it blocked the entire road um he has no explanation for it. You know, Alan was a very, very down-to-earth police officer, uh, had commendations for his work in the police force prior to this, continued as a police officer sometime afterwards until an injury forced him to, to, uh, to, to leave um, the police force. And he has no idea what happened, you know, uh, and, but all he knows is that it was real. Uh, and and uh, yeah, that's as simple as that. And of course, at the time, he didn't know, was unaware that other officers on duty that night had also seen something up on the moors above the town. Um, they, you know, that 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 news filtered out later on. And I've met one of those officers and interviewed them. And um, you know, they've all confirmed, you know, that Alan was a, a very down-to-earth, honest police officer, or an honest British Bobby, yeah. you know, who didn't who didn't stand any nonsense. If you were doing something wrong and he caught you, you were in trouble. You no. know, it's as simple as that. The book is, without consent, a comprehensive survey of missing time and abductive phenomenon. Uh, in the UK, it's author Philip Mantle, one of the two books we're going to be talking about uh, today on the show. So in the book, and of course, we'll, we'll have links up at WGNRadio.com, and hopefully people can get it at Amazon or other places, or maybe on the site what other kind of experiences are going to be in the book and the reason i ask is that now i feel that more people um just because of the of the new information and everything are open to the fact that they may have an experience like this or wondering what happens or, or what even the motivation is did you have any thoughts of the people you talked about that are in the book yeah i mean some people you know i i came across i was introduced to them by by colleagues and uh, others simply wanted someone to talk to about it like i said they'd gone through you know that stage where who do i who do i tell you know i, I spoke to my partner and he, what can they do my family they'd no idea uh, doctor well, what's the doctor going to be able to do for you? So that, you know, sometimes the UFO researcher, like me, is, is the last resort. And, and like I said, some of them are just grateful that they can sit down and talk to someone about it. So you're, you're almost like an unofficial counsellor. Mm-hmm. And they are so relieved, A, to be able to talk to you, and sometimes to, to speak to others who've had a similar experience. Um, and like I say, these people, they don't form any kind of pattern you know they're not of any particular race religion age group gender you know they're from all walks of life all age groups 
um, all parts of, of, of the world, not just the UK, but the, my book is, is, is purely deals with uh, cases here in the UK, because that way I was able to, to interview as many as I could. Again, you know, I began this research long before the days of the internet, so I would drive and, and speak to them in person. Um, don't have to do that as much today, <laughs> thankfully. But um, and it's, it's fascinating, you know, they're just you, like you and I. They are just everyday people. Uh, and, you know, people like Police Constable Godfrey, you know, going about his work. You know, he just happened to be a police officer. We had another gentleman who was a um, forestry worker in Scotland in a place called Livingston. You know, drove the truck into the woods that morning. Not of not a desolate place by any means. The motorway runs nearby. Uh, and he encountered this this large dome-shaped object with a flange around it in a clearing. These two round balls with spikes rolled, came out and rolled towards him. He felt this very acrid smell before he blacked out. And this incident in, in Livingston in Scotland, he, sta- he managed to stagger home. His trousers were torn. He was covered in mud. And uh, he reported it. And it was reported to the local police who conducted a thorough investigation. It's the only close encounter event in the UK where a full-scale police investigation took place. So they sealed off the area where this UFO had been seen, you know, and there was marks in the ground, there was track marks, there was some, like, indentations. Luckily for them, it snowed and the ground froze, so it protected the marks. They did a, you know, a forensic test on his trousers. They were torn, you know. Uh, he had a medical examination, and uh, the, the full police report is, 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 I think it's about 12 pages, is in the book, so you can read every word of it for yourself. And they had no doubt, this was a gentleman by the name of Robert Taylor, whom I went and interviewed and met, um, they had no doubt that Mr. Taylor was telling the truth. Um, no doubt whatsoever, and the, the physical evidence about him uh, was there for all to see, it's, and at the site of where the incident took place. It's good to have it um, documented, and it's good to have it in the book. Just regular, average, everyday people meeting regular, average, everyday aliens. When we come back from this uh, from this break, we're going to talk about the other book. We're going to talk about who these who the aliens are. We're going to talk about uh, Roswell Alien Autopsy, the other book from Philip Mantle. We're going to get to the bottom of all that, and of course, have links up uh, in your questions as well. 312-981-7200. Quick break. It's Dane here on 720 WGN. WGN, it is Dane here with you until 4 a.m. And uh, on the line with us, uh, we've got uh, UFO expert, author, and authority, Philip Mantle. And uh, so, Philip, welcome back. And I want to mention, too, is that, you know, we're going to have, people should tune in tomorrow as well, uh, because we're going to have Frida Kelly on, longtime president of the Beatles fan club, is going to be joining us from Liverpool. And uh, and to keep the connections going, Philip, during the break, um, our producer, Tom Hush, said that his aunt and uncle live in Livingston, Scotland, Right now, so there's a lot of connections uh, with you, right? As we're as we're talking. Well, there you go. I mean, uh, the incident took place <clears throat> at a place called Deckmont Woods in Livingston. It's not hard to get to, and um, a colleague and I, just just as our things work, were there some years after the event, and we were taking some photographs. And where the incident actually took place uh, was a um, picnic table. 
you know, this was a table and bench, but it's concreted into the ground. And I happened to mention to my colleague, I said, why don't you get a little brass plaque made and put it on the edge of that, that table just to commemorate the area? Well, he, he went one stage further and he contacted the local council and it ended up with a huge uh, stone cairn there with a memorial plaque on it. And just, as I believe, this year, the um, again, the local authorities have put some signage up in Deckmont Woods and so a bit of information. So you'll be able to find the location and read about it as you're going in there as well. And have a very pleasant walk in Deckmont Woods at the same time. That's a tourist attraction. Oh, that's great. It's a tourist attraction. Probably some people interested, enthusiasts hoping to recreate uh, the events. And so let's get on to Roswell. When we first started talking, you had mentioned that it wasn't even part of the public consciousness, even though it had happened decades earlier. That is almost hard to even fathom, right? Because it has become so, so just like universal when it comes to UFOs and everything that's going along uh, with that. Not only just on the on the seeing the, the ships and, and visually some of those things, but actually interacting and being up close and personal with uh, with the inhabitants, with the aliens, with the pilots, whatever it is that you want to call them. So let's talk about the other book. Is Roswell Alien Autopsy the truth behind the film that shocked the world? I remember when when this came out and there was going to be you know that autopsy film and just having the opportunity to see an alien and and kind of you know get in on some of what was that whole Roswell thing and the cover up. I think added to the mystery to it. So talk a little bit about the book and what what readers will see when they get it. Yeah, well, the, the, the Alien Autopsy film was released 25 years ago this month, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, in the States, it featured on uh, Fox on Alien Autopsy Fact or Fiction, hosted by Jonathan Frakes. Uh, and it was a huge, controversial uh, piece of film. Um, the man that owned it was Ray Santilli, London businessman, uh, and his company, the Merlin Group, he claimed he'd, he'd stumbled across a, a former military cameraman a couple of years earlier who'd been flown out to Roswell to film the crash of the UFO and, and the creatures being autopsied. And he kept back a few reels of film that had, uh, needed special processing, and the, the, the authorities never came for them. So he just collected them. He saved them. And... Um, Santilli paid him cash for them. He claimed this is one of the creatures. There was some debris as well. And you see it being dissected before your very eyes. Usually controversial. I was involved in it right from the beginning. And uh, it was sort of the first UFO debate, and I'm putting it politely that way, Dane, that, that took place on the, on the, uh, the infant internet at the time. Uh, on the old CompuServe forums and things like that. People were wondering what on earth I'm talking about. But the, the Internet had just started. And, um, it, you know, it went around the world. It was shown on television here, there, and everywhere. It's still hotly debated in some arenas even today. And like I said, you know, I, I was in the thick of it right from day one, worked very closely with Ray Santilli, and I, I just set about trying to, pardon the pun, but dissect the alien autopsy film, you know, just to get to the bottom of it. Um, there were some inconsistencies that didn't add up. Uh, Ray Santilli, despite his promises, never made any original film with image available for analysis, which is strange because, you know, we had Kodak in the UK all set and ready to go to analyze um, a piece of film. 
And, you know, Ray Santilli, where he lived, was only a short drive to the Kodak HQ here in the UK. He could have hand-delivered it, Dane, but he chose not to. Uh, So slowly but surely, I chipped away and chipped away. You know, it's a long story, but the Alien Autopsy film is not just one film. It's made up of five different films in total. And they all, once one fell, then another did, and then another. It took a long time, but it ended up, I found the man behind it all. It wasn't Ray Santilli. He was the promoter. There was a gentleman by the name of Spiros Malaris who stepped forward. Uh, We had most of his name, but he stepped forward in 2006. He is the mastermind behind it all. He is, as a profession, he is uh, an artist, uh, a filmmaker, and a very, very good magician. He also trained as a, um, a, a mechanic as a young man, so he's a, a lot of skills, you know, in his locker. And he made the film with his colleague, John Humphreys, who was a sculptor, and another couple of people that made it on, you know, the behest of Ray Santilli. The only difference is, Spiros says, we, originally it wasn't any idea to sell it for money. The idea was to release it, and then, you know, maybe six or nine months down the line, do a reveal and say, we made it, look how good we are, come and hire us. You know, that that was the plan. But he said, you know, oh, Santilli wow. still had this this crazy story about, you know, buying the film and all this lot. So he, he, he just let him get on with it. You know, Spiros didn't make any money out of it or anything like that. Santilli, on the other hand, made millions. You know, there was even a movie made here in in, uh, in 2006, uh, which was um, released by Warner Brothers. So it is the 25th anniversary on August the 28th. So that's 25 years since it was first released. Uh, no doubt Mr. Santilli will be putting out some kind of silly story. He still claims that he did have some film. But what you now see, he claims, is a restoration. You know, they had to restore it. Um, yeah. Although there was no film left to restore, <laughs> so it's a, but it is it's, it is it, it is a hoax. Yeah, the t- whole the whole lot is a hoax. It's a fake, and I detail my research in the book, uh, Dane. I've made it large format, so it's eight by ten inches, and that way I can reproduce some of the um, the letters, the faxes, the you know transcripts of interviews. All in full. I don't have to paraphrase them or summarize them. You can see them all as you go through. Speak to everybody and take it right the way through from its its, its very genesis, where the idea was first germinated, right the way through to to, to, to today. So you have the complete history. And it took on a life of its own. So it's amazing that you were able to put the book together in the last like 30 seconds or so as we as we let you go and of course we'll have links up at wgnradio.com give you know the website or your social media where people can catch up with uh, with the adventures get more information continue the conversation yeah you'll find me on facebook i'm, I'm there but if, if you just want to go to the website it's you know just flyingdiscpress.com and that's disc with a k you'll find it up contact details there plus all of the books that i both have authored and published by others as well uh one of the best in the business one of the experts the authorities and excited and just so um just glad to be able to kind of have that opportunity to talk with you about that and thanks so much philip for jumping on the show tonight yeah my pleasure you have a great day
All right. Wow. So we got to the bottom of a lot of stuff when it came to the UFO side of it, not only on the abduction side, but also as far as uh, the, the the video and that film that, of course, kind of shocked the world. And uh, no better than Philip Mantle kind of there to uh, to tell that story and debunk some of those things and kind of fill us in on all that. We've got a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to wrap it up. It's Dane here on 720 WGN. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, and I'm a breast cancer survivor. I founded a Silver Lining Foundation in 2002 to raise awareness about the importance of early detection and to eliminate any cost concerns. Do you live in the greater Chicagoland, Evanston, Elgin, or Rockford areas and know you should get that potentially life-saving test? Are you a breast cancer survivor who can't afford follow-up testing? We can help. And if you called last year, it's time for your annual mammogram, and we'll make sure you get it. A Silver Lining Foundation works with 12 partner hospitals and you'll be treated with the dignity and respect every human being deserves life is tough but getting a mammogram isn't early detection saved my life and it could save yours my mom used to say we're all family and we have to help each other through the tough times call us at 312-345-1322 312-345-1322 or visit a silverliningfoundation.org there is a silver lining 720 WGN is Dane here with you for another few seconds. Thanks to everybody that listened to the show. Thanks to everybody who participated. Be sure to tune in tomorrow. Frida Kelly is going to be joining us. Longtime uh, president of the Beatles fan club. Plus, we'll be talking Portugal as well. So, so much going on. Tom, thanks for all of your help today. And, of course, we'll play some more Johnny Carson as well. Now it is time for the news. Serving the great Midwest from Chicago, this is WGN at AM 720 on your radio dial and on smart devices.